Well, 36 years ago this month, a killing spree began that would leave Western New Yorkers in fear for months as the 22 caliber killer started his racially motivated murders. Channel 2's Michael Wooten takes a look back at the terror in the community and talks with an author who is now working on a new book about this compelling case. It was a cold and rainy night, September 22, 1980. A black 14-year-old was sitting in a car in a supermarket parking lot in Buffalo. Around 10 o'clock, a man walked up, put a gun to the teen's head, and pulled the trigger. Glenn Dunn would be the first of many victims of the 22 caliber killer. Over the next 36 hours, three more black men were shot and killed. 23-year-old Harold Green was eating lunch in his car in Chictawaga, shot in his temple. Emmanuel Thomas was crossing ferry and Zinner streets in Buffalo when he was hit by a single bullet. And 43-year-old Joseph McCoy was walking down a street in Niagara Falls when he was targeted. The community was was terrified. Fear consumed Western New York, especially African-American men. So I'm afraid. The following Monday, confirmation the same weapon was used in all four shootings. Very quickly, the police connected that it, it was the same shooter. It all came from the same 22 caliber weapon. Two days later, the FBI joined dozens of local detectives trying to catch this serial killer. This is unprecedented uh, in the area that so many police departments are working together. Just two weeks later, it got worse. Two black cab drivers from Buffalo were found beaten to death, their hearts cut out. Many suspected the 22 caliber killer had struck again, but without his signature weapon. The fear was overwhelming in the community. Six victims, no suspects, the region paralyzed by fear. But the terror stopped until December, when the bloodshed shifted to New York City. There, six men, five black and one Hispanic, all stabbed over a 12-hour period. We would later find out the so-called Midtown Slasher was the same man responsible for the Western New York shootings. And he wasn't done. In a four-day period around the new year, five more stabbings in Buffalo and Rochester, a single serial killer suspected of it all. I've actually been researching this case for uh, over a year. Catherine Pellinero was a child living in Western New York during the killing spree. She can't remember much, the author of this New York Times bestseller about the murder of Kitty Genovese decided to tackle another real-life crime drama with a focus on the man behind the murders. This is the first time I've ever seen film. Catherine was amazed at the lucky break it took to catch the killer. The latest lead is considered as good as any that Lyman have had in the pro. The lead came from Fort Benning, Georgia. An army private had attacked a black soldier and later, while in a psychiatric unit, told nurses he was involved with murders in Buffalo. When he was finally brought back to Western New York, authorities covered his face to avoid tainting witness identifications. They didn't want people identifying him from television. He was ID'd as Joseph Christopher. For the black community, a huge sigh of relief, ending worries of a possible race war. Relieve some of the pressure in this community some of the tension. People who knew the suspect couldn't believe he was responsible. He's liked by many of the neighbors. He helped elderly people. Is it really true? Catherine says there was nothing in Christopher's upbringing to suggest he could be behind the racist attacks. If you really look into his background, he had very close friends who were black, who when they started investigating him, they said, oh, you've got the wrong guy. Christopher was initially charged with three counts of murder. He wore a bulletproof vest to court to protect his own life. Pre-trial hearings centered on his sanity. It turns out he had tried to check himself into the Buffalo Psychiatric Center in September 1980, days before the first killings. He was denied. As he entered the military, his mental health deteriorated even more. He had a, a psychotic break. 
while he was there. Sometimes he is very violent and other times very despondent. Christopher would eventually be found competent to stand trial and in 1982 a judge found him guilty. An appeals court overturned that but Christopher was convicted on charges in New York City and retried in Buffalo. He got a life sentence and died in prison of a rare form of male breast cancer at age 37. He just wasn't who you would think would commit that, those kind of crimes. Catherine says her research proves the 22 caliber killer had severe mental illness. Was he sane enough to have gone through this trial? No. No. He was not confident. The title of her book will be Absolute Madness to describe the chaos in the community during the crime spree as well as the mental state of Joseph Christopher. The way we, we handle the mentally ill, it's not what it should be. I wish I could say it wouldn't happen today, but I no, I'm not so sure about that, which I think is another important reason to write the book because it seems to me that really so little has changed. It is going to be a great read. Catherine is writing her manuscript now. She's wrapped up all the research, and the book is scheduled for a hardcover release next fall. Context of white supremacy. Say so little has changed. Talking about mental health, not white supremacy, racism, and white race soldiers still heading to Buffalo, Empire State in general, to kill black people, as many black people as possible. Kath or the Catherine Massey Book Club at the Cows. This is our 11th study session on Catherine Pelinero's Absolute Madness. Uh, we actually heard Catherine Pelinero this week again Normally, we would have heard from the author many times by now to get some extra insight on their thought process about putting the book together. But with this text, I thought it was so important to try to get as much uh, archival information as possible about this case and how it was recorded uh, at the time, uh, since so few of us, Gus T included, uh, remember or are knowledgeable uh, about these events. Uh, but before we get to the end, we will make sure to include Miss Pelinero so we can hear what was her thought process, her motivation for constructing this project. Now you heard some of that in that interview. Mental health. Poor Joey. Oh, if he had just gotten the help that he needed, he was absolutely, and again, I said this before, man, are you a mental health expert talking about Catherine Pelinero? I thought she was an author, journalist, like to say definitively. He had some sort of, you know, mental health issue, whatever the case is, like, hmm. Anyway, also, she said she grew up in the western New York area, which I think we already knew. Uh, but she said she did not remember these events. I thought that was interesting as well. Pretty much everyone else has said the same thing, but said she didn't really remember these events. So I guess she wasn't growing up in fear during this time period that Joey was going to come and get her and or her family members. Anyway, we're picking up at the end of chapter 14, very end. Oh my goodness, there is an extraordinary courtroom exchange between white people about the word nigra. I cannot wait. I didn't, I'm still learning. I hadn't read this book before. I had no idea. This is like Mark Furman-esque. Oh my God. And I think it's coming up right in the early part of the first audio segment. So buckle up. I cannot wait. There's so much great info in this book about racism, white supremacy. Incidentally, you can check the Facebook page. I got one of the cartoons that was mentioned last week that's kind of pointing out 
these sketches look nothing like Joey. Nothing. Uh, you can look on social media and see some of those. And I solved the mystery about Kanisha's college, what happened in autumn of 1996. I'll report on that later. And when I was doing all of my digging, I even found a report on the 22 caliber trial, Joey, with Rick James, a report on him mentioned directly above. I posted that online as well. The great Rick James. Anyway, we will go ahead and get started. Context of White Supremacy, the Catherine Massey Book Club, Absolute Madness, audio segment one. You were cold as ice long ago. The hearings were laced with contention between Mark Mahoney, who had the burden of presenting the defense case himself, and prosecutors Dwayne Stamp and William Knapp. Despite Joseph's objections, Dillon remained in court throughout the hearings and assisted Mahoney with arguments and motions. Dillon also continued working on Joseph's behalf out of court, preparing for what would surely be a daunting and protracted trial. Mahoney, of course, had to be the one who communicated with Joseph, visiting him at the holding center between court appearances. Joseph was no longer starving himself. He now went in the opposite direction, gorging himself and asking for more and more food. He was also caught eating paint chips off the jail floor. Rayford Ames, commanding officer of the Fort Benning stockade, was one of the Army witnesses who testified at the hearing. Mark Mahoney elicited information about his interaction with Christopher that, even without benefit of a court ruling, effectively eliminated Ames as a prosecution trial witness. Mahoney confronted Ames with additional details of the lengthy conversation he'd had with Christopher in his office that hadn't come up in his interview with the investigators or in his direct testimony by the prosecution. Under questioning, Ames acknowledged that he had asked Christopher, Did you come to my office to kill me? Joseph had answered no. It was your hope that Mr. Christopher was going to make statements to you regarding the offenses in Buffalo. Isn't that true? Mahoney asked. In a sense, yes, sir. And you were hoping that those statements would be seen to be voluntary? Yes, Ames acknowledged that he wanted to gain Christopher's confidence so that he would feel free to talk. At the time that you engaged in this conversation with Mr. Christopher, you went further into the question of race, did you not? Mahoney asked. Ames replied affirmatively. Didn't you talk with him about the word nigger? Repeat. Did you talk to him about the word nigger? Yes, sir, I did. What did you say to him? I asked him to say the word nigger, Ames answered, I guess just to see his reaction. Did you want to make him feel comfortable in saying the word nigger to you? Make him feel comfortable in any feelings he may have about race? That may have been the case, sir. Did you tell him that he was in trouble because he had been running off at his mouth, and if he hadn't done that, then he would be let free to go and kill fifty or sixty other blacks? Mahoney asked. That's true, sir, Ames said. 
You told him that the attention that he was receiving, with all that attention, he was becoming a celebrity, perhaps like a hero? Yes. These were things again to try and develop this rapport with Mr. Christopher, weren't they? I don't know, sir. Why did you say it? Mahoney asked. I thought it was a true statement. Did you say that, Mahoney inquired, to play upon his ego, to make him feel good about the fact that he was a hero? That could possibly be true. You were trying to make him feel good about himself, weren't you? Perhaps, sir, yes, sir. At the time you were talking to him, your conversation was interrupted by this lady friend of yours who had appeared. Is that true? Ames said that this was true, and that the woman was not a military person, but his dinner date for the evening. He acknowledged that the woman participated in the conversation between himself and Christopher. You did nothing to prevent that, did you, sir? Mahoney asked. No, sir, I did not. And she very pointedly asked him about the events in Buffalo. Yes, sir, she did. You were very interested to know what his answer would be to that question, weren't you? Yes, sir, the witness answered. Ames had stated on direct questioning by William Knapp that Joseph's answer to whether he'd killed people had been, as Captain Ames had previously told police, people say I did. Mahoney asked if Ames had told Christopher that a woman was coming to his office. Ames replied that he had. He told him he had a female companion coming. What else did you tell Mr. Christopher about her? Mahoney probed. That was basically it. Wasn't there something else that you recall? That if he wanted to talk to her, he could, Ames answered. That is all, sir? Wasn't there something else you told him? Sir, you need to be more specific. All right, I will be more specific, said Mahoney. Did you tell him that you would ask her if she was willing to engage in sexual activity with him? I told him if he wanted to ask her, he could. I wouldn't ask her that. You didn't feel it would be proper for you to ask her? Mahoney inquired. Objection, Prosecutor William Knapp said. Question argumentative. Mahoney forged ahead. When she came in, the topic of her having sexual activity with Mr. Christopher was mentioned, wasn't it? Yes, sir, it was, Ames replied. Didn't you ask her if she was willing to do that? I don't recall asking her, said Ames. I recall prisoner Christopher asking her that. And she said that there was no place to go at that time, didn't she? Mahoney asked. I don't recall what her specific answer was, but I do know she declined his offer. You told him that she was coming, and that's when you told him that he could ask her if he wanted to have some sex with her. Yes, sir. Objection, Knapp interjected. Judge Flynn overruled. Mahoney questioned Captain Ames about Father Freeman's visits with Joseph. Ames acknowledged that Freeman had discussed their conversation with Ames, and further, that Father Freeman had called Ames to alert him to the fact that he'd had a sacramental conversation with Christopher. In response to a question by Mahoney, Ames agreed that this had caused him to think that Christopher must have said something of importance to the priest. When court resumed after the lunch recess, Mahoney asked Captain Ames if he'd had a conversation with the prosecutors during the noon hour. The witness replied yes, 
and Mahoney asked him what was discussed. Judge Flynn overruled Knapp's objection, and the witness answered. We discussed the case surrounding the prisoner Christopher and myself, incidents that took place, clarification of some of those incidents, refreshing myself and trying to get things straight as to the sequence in which things happened. Mahoney asked if his recollection had been refreshed in regard to his lady friend, and the witness replied, We discussed her, yes, sir. Did you have occasion to call her over the noon hour, as did Mr. Dillon? Mahoney asked. No, sir, I did not. Having thought the matter over, do you agree that she was in the room with you and Mr. Christopher for over a half hour, approximately forty-five minutes? She may have been, sir. Do you recall that you said to Mr. Christopher that she is a pretty nice black girl? No, sir, I don't recall. Do you recall telling Mr. Christopher, wouldn't you like to get to know her? No, I don't recall. Are you denying that you said such a thing? Mahoney asked. No, sir, I am not. Did you tell Mr. Christopher then, would you like to have sex with her? And did Mr. Christopher indicate that he would like to have sex with her since he had been locked up for months? Ames said he didn't recall either statement, but made no denials. He recalled the woman saying she wasn't interested. Did you ask her? Mahoney inquired. Is that because he is white? I don't recall, sir. Do you recall that after this conversation she stayed in the room while you talked with Mr. Christopher about his family, his beliefs, and plans for the future? That may be the case, sir. I am not sure. Are there other things that you recall about that incident with Mr. Christopher that you care to tell us? Mahoney asked. No, sir. Eighteen-year-old Kenny Paulson had been interviewed by prosecutors in the wake of the lineups and his grand jury testimony. Kenny's memory was improving all the time. He remembered that he used to date Angela Christopher. He said he didn't know her brother Joe, though. Kenny claimed he didn't know that Joe and Angela were related until one of Kenny's own sisters, who had been present when police asked him whether he knew Joe Christopher, told him a day or so later that Joe was Angela's brother. John Reagan didn't buy it. In Reagan's opinion, Kenny had known from the start who shot Glenn Dunn that night. There was no way to prove this, however, and Kenny further had to be handled with some delicacy as he was potentially a key prosecution witness, providing they would get him to testify truthfully and navigate his credibility issues. Under questioning by Mark Mahoney, Kenny said he had initially misled police and declined to make an ID at the lineup because he didn't want to be involved, but had changed his mind because he didn't want to have it on his conscience. Reagan wondered if Kenny's improved memory had less to do with conscience and more with seeing stories in the news about the substantial reward money the psychiatric nurses might be receiving as a result of their testimony. Either way, Kenny Paulson was no longer John Reagan's problem. It was probably a good thing for both of them that they wouldn't be spending any more time together. Pre-trial hearings concluded on September 8th. The start of the trial was delayed four times— twice as a result of arguments by Dillon and Mahoney that the prosecution was holding back material to which they were entitled, including potentially exculpatory information 
such as confessions to the crimes made by other suspects. The delays irritated prosecutors, who were eager to proceed to trial. Judge Flynn told the media that he granted the defense requests to eliminate the possibilities that prosecutors may have inadvertently overlooked material in their files that they should have given to the defense. As the trial approached, the defense attorneys had made no progress with their client in terms of rational participation in his defense. Mahoney continued hitting a brick wall when he tried to discuss trial strategy or how to respond to evidence expected from the prosecution. Joe's answers to anything related to witnesses, evidence, or possible defenses were always the same. I'll take care of that, or leave that up to me. He never explained or elaborated. He flatly refused to discuss the charges against him. He insisted he was going to make his own decisions. At the conclusion of the pretrial hearings, he had asked Mahoney what they were all about. Jury selection began on October 20, 1981. Dylan and Mahoney had an in-chambers conference with their client and Judge Flynn before the proceedings. Your Honor, said Mark Mahoney, the subject I wish to bring up is the fact that because of the nature of the accusation in this case, and because of some public comments made by the district attorney during the investigation of these cases regarding the possible sanity or not of the person who may have committed these offenses, and because of the fact that at the time suspicion fell on Mr. Christopher, he was in a psychiatric ward receiving treatment at Fort Benning. We have explored the possibility of raising the defense of insanity with Mr. Christopher throughout. We have offered him the possibility of discussing this matter with us and with a psychiatrist appointed by the defense, and Mr. Christopher has to this point declined the opportunity to pursue that avenue of defense. I add that we are not in disagreement with him, but I think that it's important for us to establish on the record that this avenue of defense has been explored. We have discussed with Mr. Christopher all the strategic implications of both the defense of not criminally responsible by reason of insanity and the more or less factual defense to which we are committed at present. And I think he has had the opportunity to evaluate those choices, and as I say, he has made a decision. I want to bring it to the attention of the court at this time so that we can establish that it is his decision as well as something that we have done on his behalf. Kevin Dillon spoke. Your Honor, two brief things I would like to add to what Mr. Mahoney just said. The statements he was referring to by the district attorney were made in the spring by District Attorney Cosgrove to a press conference of some sort that were to the effect that any attorneys who represent the person who will be ultimately charged with the commission of these crimes that does not raise an insanity defense is insane themselves. Secondly, we had had direct contact with Dr. Lynch, have met with him personally about the possibility of interposing an insanity defense on Mr. Christopher's behalf. All right, Judge Flynn responded. Is that it? Mark Mahoney turned to his client. I'm wondering, Joe, is there anything you would like to say in this regard? Are you satisfied that we have explored that possibility and intelligently rejected it? I don't know what the hell you're talking about, man. Christopher said. Anything else? 
Judge Flynn asked. Well, said Mahoney, I really don't necessarily want to leave it at that, Your Honor. Does Your Honor wish to examine Mr. Christopher at this point? No, said Flynn. That's something I don't enter into. That's a matter between defendant and counsel. I think you made it clear on the record what the position is. Joe, is there anything you would like to ask me to clarify at this point? Mahoney asked. No. Is there anything that you don't understand about what I just told the judge? You asked me before if I wanted to enter an insanity, please, and I told you no, said Joseph. You still agree with that? Mahoney asked. Yes, he answered. All right, thank you, said Judge Flynn. Jury selection was underway when the defendant suddenly stood up. I don't want a jury. Kevin Dillon and Mark Mahoney were floored, as was everyone else in the packed courtroom. For a moment, no one spoke. You don't wish to have a jury hear your case? Judge Flynn asked. Christopher said he didn't. Judge Flynn asked him why. I feel you are an educated man. You know the law, and you are the judge, Christopher said. And you wish to waive a jury trial, the judge asked. That's right. I don't approve of this, Mark Mahoney interjected. Dylan and Mahoney leaned in and spoke to Joseph, or tried to. He ignored them and told the judge, No jury! Judge Flynn advised Christopher that he had a constitutional right to a jury trial. While he had a right to waive it, the judge told him, there were many advantages to a jury trial. The defendant replied, Constitution says it's my right to waive the jury. Is there some reason you don't want to handle the case? Judge Flynn told Joseph that he would have to sign a jury waiver before the court. I'm not signing anything. Just put on the record I'm waiving a jury. Mahoney interrupted. Your Honor, it is our position that he's not doing this knowingly. We do not approve of this. Mahoney and Dillon protested. Christopher did not understand the ramifications of waiving a jury, they said. Am I on trial against my attorneys, or am I on trial against an indictment? said Christopher. Judge Flynn pointed out that Christopher had been found competent to stand trial. He therefore had no discretion to refuse his jury waiver request. The attorneys continued objecting. They asked for a hearing to determine if Christopher was knowingly and intelligently waiving his right to a jury trial. The court presented Christopher with a jury waiver form. He refused to sign. Judge Flynn told him he'd have to proceed with a jury trial unless he signed. Christopher looked at the waiver. He didn't believe it was a real court form. He argued with the judge, saying that it wasn't an official court form because it don't have any numbers on it. Judge Flynn told him again that the law required him to sign the waiver, and Joseph complained, So it doesn't matter what I want? You're just going to do what you want? Dylan and Mahoney sat back and let Joseph Christopher speak, perhaps hoping the judge would realize that the emperor had no clothes. Judge Flynn ordered the prospective jurors brought in. Christopher stared intently at the jury box. He then told Judge Flynn he'd sign the form and did so amid renewed protests from his attorneys.
I don't approve of this, Mahoney told the judge. He pressed for a hearing. The record is insufficient to support the supposition that the defendant knowingly and intelligently waived his right to trial by jury. Arguing his point, Mahoney said that, at the time suspicion fell on Mr. Christopher, he was diagnosed as psychotic. I'd rather Mr. Mahoney not finish, Christopher said. Can I approach the bench? You have made it clear you want to waive a jury, despite Mr. Mahoney's arguments, said Judge Flynn. It would be intolerable to force the defendant into a jury trial when he said he doesn't want it. Judge Flynn approved the waiver. An intense exchange followed between Flynn and Mahoney. Your Honor, the court did not inquire at the time of the plea. It was not a plea, the judge interjected. Excuse me, Your Honor, said Mahoney. I tend to equate the two. The waiver is as important as a plea and should be dealt with as seriously. Flynn ruled the waiver was acceptable. Dylan and Mahoney pressed their arguments in a closed-door session with the judge the following day. Judge Flynn agreed to have Christopher re-examined by the psychiatrist who had declared him competent in May. Doctors Molnar and Wadsworth re-examined Christopher the following week with an eye toward determining if he had sufficient competence to waive a jury. This time, there was no consensus. Dr. Molnar maintained he was competent, while Dr. Wadsworth revised his diagnosis to paranoid schizophrenia and declared him incompetent. The court ordered two more psychiatrists, Dr. Brian Joseph and Dr. Harry Rubenstein, to examine Christopher. Dr. Joseph diagnosed Christopher as suffering from paranoid schizophrenia and deemed him incompetent. Dr. Rubenstein gave no diagnosis but judged him competent. A fifth psychiatrist was brought in as a tiebreaker. Dr. S.K. Park diagnosed Joseph as a paranoid schizophrenic and gave the opinion he was incompetent to stand trial. Edward Cosgrove expressed anger over the trial delay and requested that the competency hearings be open to the public. Judge Flynn granted the request. The five psychiatrists presented their findings in open court and underwent questioning and cross-examination by attorneys for the prosecution and the defense. Prosecutors Stamp and Knapp argued vigorously for a finding of competency. Stamp complained to the judge that Mark Mahoney, who had been present as an observer during the psychiatric exams, had attempted to influence the findings by telling the doctors about his own interactions with Christopher. Mahoney countered that it was reasonable and appropriate to provide examiners with the background, and further that the pre-exam discussions with the psychiatrist had been permitted by the supervisor of the Forensic Mental Health Service. Mahoney spoke in open court about the numerous difficulties he'd personally experienced with Christopher and argued for a finding of incompetency to stand trial, much to his client's objection and displeasure. Christopher interrupted the proceedings throughout the competency hearings, calling out questions and comments to doctors as they testified. When psychiatrists cited examples of Joe's behavior that they interpreted as signs of mental illness, he would cry out, That's an irrelevance! and otherwise argue as judge and defense attorneys urged him not to speak out of turn. Judge Flynn gave his ruling on December 16th. 
The law defines an incapacitated person as a defendant who, as a result of mental disease or defect, lacks capacity to understand the proceedings against him or to assist in his own defense. Flynn's decision had been difficult due to the conflicting psychiatric opinions. Even the psychiatrists who had deemed Christopher competent had nevertheless found him suffering from serious mental disturbance. The judge adjudicated Joseph Christopher an incapacitated person. He ordered Christopher committed to Mid-Hudson Psychiatric Center for treatment until such time that he was deemed mentally fit for trial. I am not an incapacitated person, Christopher protested. He was led from court. The following day, he was transported under heavy guard to Northampton, New York, and admitted to Mid-Hudson. There was an outcry from black leaders who voiced strong opposition to Judge Flynn's ruling, convinced it meant that Joseph Christopher would never stand trial. Councilman James Pitts was quoted, Something has to be done to make judges more accountable. This is a slap in the face, particularly to the black community and the city of Buffalo. Pitts continued, If someone is not brought to justice for the killings, you are going to have a violent reaction from some sectors of the community. Daniel Acker of the NAACP said of Flynn's ruling, This is the kind of decision that causes more violence in our cities. Their acrimony was not limited to, nor even solely based upon, Judge Flynn's decision. D.A. Edward Cosgrove was the main target of dissatisfaction. Cosgrove's term was coming to an end on December 31st. He had decided not to seek re-election. He had also decided to disband the task force. Learning that the Buffalo Common Council had scheduled a ceremony during which they intended to cite the outgoing district attorney for his accomplishments over the past eight years in office, members of the Black Leadership Forum announced they would attend for the purpose of delivering a citation of infamy for what they viewed as Cosgrove's poor handling of the investigation. There was widespread belief in the black community that more than one person had been involved in the murders. The Forum wanted the task force to remain in operation to investigate the slayings of Parlor Edwards, Ernest Jones, Roger Adams, and Wendell Barnes. Incoming District Attorney Richard Arcara promised to take their concerns under consideration. As for the commitment of Joseph Christopher to a psychiatric facility, Cosgrove called it a disappointment, and black leaders referred to it as a miscarriage of justice. They wanted Christopher to stand trial. Their greatest ally on these points was the subject himself. Joseph refused to cooperate with the mental health staff. He would not answer questions or undergo any tests. In January, his mother had to fill out his personal and medical history forms. Among the detailed information she provided, Teresa informed them of a head injury Joseph had suffered in 1979. While making repairs underneath a pickup truck, the jack had slipped and the truck fell. Joe was hit in the head by the axle and was semi-conscious for about five minutes. His forehead bled profusely and was swollen. He received stitches, but he had refused to submit to a CAT scan because he was afraid it would cause brain damage. 
Joseph believed that Army personnel at Fort Benning had told him that he had sexually attacked his mother. He also believed that the Army was attempting to make him give up his religious faith. On January 26, 1982, the director of Mid-Hudson Psychiatric Center, Dr. Erdogan Tekbin, wrote a letter to Judge William Flynn that read, Our efforts to reach an appropriate psychiatric diagnosis by utilizing available diagnostic tools have been hampered by the unwillingness of the defendant. Christopher had refused a brain scan, which they felt was necessary because his unequal pupils warranted further exploration. He also declined to participate in all psychological testing, which would be, Techbin wrote, a significant aid toward establishing an accurate psychiatric diagnosis, especially because he is not informative. Christopher would not even submit to routine blood and urine work. We have utilized every clinical approach to persuade him to accept the administration of these tests, but we failed, as others did in the past. I would be most grateful if you would advise me whether the court can and is willing to compel him to submit to these tests, which may prove to be essential in reaching an accurate diagnosis and opinion of his fitness to proceed. There was little time for Judge Flynn to consider such a measure. In addition to not cooperating with the center, Joseph made continuous and concerted efforts to gain his release, filing a writ of habeas corpus on January 18th with an Orange County court, which ordered a hearing on January 20th and then the appointment of an independent psychiatrist. Two weeks later, Dr. Richard Wiedenbacher examined Joe at Mid-Hudson and found him fit to proceed with a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia in remission. Joe told Dr. Wiedenbacher that he was eager to go to trial and thought he'd be acquitted. Your Honor, I have been interviewed by five doctors, two of which found me competent, two incompetent, and one was undecided. Opt to further test in a therapeutic environment, in that they only spent short minutes of time with me. Hence, I was adjudicated to Mid-Hudson PC. I was found competent by five doctor, and also an independent doctor in New York State's number one-ranked therapeutic center. I, there now being a preponderance of evidence, nine doctors supporting my position and two not, will not be a party to another test or feel a need for a hearing, because the result of the previous did not support the preference of someone else. I correlate my position to a man that wins a trip in Las Vegas, was sent there, takes the house, and comes back an acquaintance possibly having interest in says, Hey, how about me, and you go to Atlantic City? I'll provide the transportation. How is that? How about? How about? Sincerely, Joseph Christopher. On February 24th, Joseph was discharged from Mid-Hudson and returned to Buffalo to stand trial. Part 4. The Gauntlet I could tell you my adventures, beginning from this morning, but it's no use going back to yesterday, because I was a different person then. Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland
Chapter 16 Welcome Home A deputy smiled and greeted a shackled Joe Christopher as he entered the Erie County Holding Center. Joe smiled back. What's for dinner? Christopher's comings and goings were still big news. Officials who were part of his travel entourage told reporters that Joseph Christopher seemed like an entirely different person upon return from his ten-week stay at Mid-Hudson. He was much more outgoing, they said, even laughing and joking around with his captors on the ride back. He had also taken up smoking. He brought cartons of cigarettes back with him, along with the books The Way and Shogun. Salvatore Castiglione was an Erie County Sheriff's deputy who worked at the holding center. Unlike the men who accompanied Christopher on his trips in and out of town, Sal spent time with him on a daily and hour-to-hour basis. Sal had been assigned to the 24-7 watch of the holding center's most notorious prisoner since his arrival the previous spring, and resumed the duty when Joe returned in February. Sal had been working at the county jail for a decade, but rarely had as much interaction with an inmate as he had with Joseph Christopher. The immensely high-profile nature of the case, combined with Christopher's tenuous mental condition and the widespread hatred of him by black inmates, who made up the vast majority of the holding center population, necessitated a very strict and thoroughly literal adherence to the -the round-the-clock watch policy. The two principal concerns were that Christopher would kill himself or be killed by someone else, either of which would have resulted in some very bad publicity for the sheriff's department. Thus, there was not a single moment when he was left alone or unobserved. Christopher had been kept in the hole, a segregation cell, when he had first arrived in May of 1981, but was soon moved to special housing on the main floor in the infirmary, a four-cell block that he alone occupied and it was to this special confinement area that he returned in February 1982. A sheriff's deputy, most often Sal, who worked this assignment five to six days per week plus overtime, had to sit right outside the cell at all times, eyes on the prisoner. Christopher's every movement had to be written down in tedious detail. Time gaps would trigger questions from superiors, Deputies were required to not only maintain the log during their shift, but also to review the log of the deputy from the prior shift. With all this insistence on detail, the day and night Joe Christopher reports typically read something like, 3.02 p.m., picked up pencil, was drawing picture. 3.06 p.m., dropped pencil, bent over to pick it up. 3.22 p.m., used commode went and sat on his bunk at 3.25. A light remained on in the cell at all times. There was no curtain or any type of obstruction blocking the deputy's view of the commode or the shower. Standing or sitting just outside the cell at no more than a few feet away, the deputy was required to observe and record all hygienic activities as well. You like watching men shower? Christopher would taunt. Nah. Sal would answer. You don't have anything that interests me. And they'd both laugh. They'd toss little jabs at each other, making the best of a setup that was odd and uncomfortable for both of them. It was a very unique assignment in more ways than one.
Sal would outfit Joe in the bulletproof vest and shackles and escort him through the jail to his many court appearances. Christopher had been an object of derision from the start. He eventually started striking back, wearing his serial killer persona like a glove. As Sal recalled, in the mornings, all the court cases are being set so all the prisoners come down to the bullpens on the main floor. So you've got probably 150 inmates in these different bullpens, usually about 50 in each. They'd see me coming out with Christopher, and all of a sudden they'd be screaming and throwing things. There he is! There he is! There's that mother! I got peppered by all kinds of stuff because I had to try to drag him through the hall, and he didn't want to go fast. He would smile at them and say, I should have killed more of you fucking niggers. And I'd be saying to him, shut up, shut up. Yeah, he didn't make my job too easy. We had him locked in, and he'd keep saying it real loud down the hall. I should have killed more of those fucking niggers. While I'm telling him to be quiet. And they're all screaming my name, because they knew me from working in the jail for 11 years. They're yelling, Sal, bring him over to the bars. We'll take care of him for you. And I'm going, I can't. They wanted a piece of him real bad. Some of the inmates would tell me, Sal, you want a Cadillac? We'll get you a brand new Cadillac for five minutes alone with him. And Joe used to just laugh. I'm looking at him thinking, oh my God, this kid is sick. Protesters would show up outside the jail and in the courthouse. We'd have people with signs demonstrating in the hallway, throwing their signs saying, Give him to us. We'll take care of him. And I'm saying to myself, oh, no, they're going to take care of him, and I'm going to get killed trying to protect this lunatic. There'd be a wall of deputies on both sides of him and me. If somebody tried to come through the line, we used to grab them and pound the piss out of them, you know, because they were trying to get to him. You never knew who was going to break through the line with a knife or a gun or whatever. It was like going through a gauntlet and Christopher would be saying to them, Why don't you shove those signs up your ass? Christopher's change in attitude might have been influenced by feedback he was getting from some of the deputies. They'd pass by his cell and tell him, Joe, we're raising bail money for you so you can get out there and finish the job. Joe would tell them, Keep up the good work, and they'd laugh and say, Yeah, you too. Joe ate it up. He liked feeling like one of us. One guy told him, Joe, they caught you too soon. We had a list for you to take care of. Joe said, I'd have gotten the job done. Crime had gone way down when he was out there doing these killings. Blacks were afraid to go out on the street. There were people back then saying, Keep it up, man, keep it up, before anybody knew his name. Back in the cell, Joe didn't have much to occupy his time. He drew pictures of the deputies or shined shoes. He still refused to have a TV or radio in his cell, which Sal found odd. Authorities at the jail wanted to keep the peace with Christopher, and they would have given him anything he wanted, within reason, to keep him busy. All he ever asked for was food, quite a lot of it, in fact, though he insisted it was poisoned. Here, you try some, he'd say to Sal. No, you just got done eating. I'm not going to try any of your food. Because it's poisoned, isn't it? No, it's not, Sal would tell him. Joe was also convinced they put saltpeter in his food. 
He ate it anyway. He didn't exercise and started gaining a lot of weight. Joe could be very talkative during the long hours when it was just the two of them, though he tended to go on and off like a light bulb, as Sal described it. He'd be real quiet for long periods of time. He'd sit there writing and writing and writing. And I'd be saying to myself, what the hell is he writing about? Then he'd put the pencil down and start talking as if he just woke up. He often asked Sal about his time in the service. Sal had spent four years in the Marines, where he had set a marksmanship record and once captured a spy taking photos around the Marine Corps air station at Miramar. Joe was impressed. He told Sal about his own experience in the military. He said he liked the Army. He wished he was still in the Army. He said that some of the best friends he ever made were in the Army. The only thing he didn't like about it was the blacks. He said to me, I knew I couldn't do anything about the blacks around me. I could only do it away from my base, so nobody would suspect me. He'd wait till he came home on leave. Joe would suddenly turn the conversation to more pointed topics. Sal, did I ever tell you about the one I shot when he was coming out of the store? Coming out of the store? Yeah. I walked up behind him. Boom. Just like that. Huh. Did he die right away? Yeah, I think so. I shot him right in the back of the head. That type of talk wasn't unique at the holding center. A lot of prisoners like to boast about what they did, Sal recalled. Now with Joe Christopher, this is a guy who lived in some kind of fantasy world, so he probably made a lot of stories up. I knew he was fighting his own, you know, thoughts and mind. I worked with enough crazy people in the jail that I knew when a guy wasn't all there. I asked him, why'd you pick on the blacks? He said it was because a black guy raped his sister. I don't know, but that's what he told me. I took everything he said with a grain of salt. I said to him, well, you can't blame all people for one person doing something. And he goes, they're all no good. They all deserve to die. He used to talk about these guys he killed and tell me he enjoyed it. I'm going, you enjoyed it? He said, yeah. I only regret I didn't kill more. He'd be smiling when he was telling me about it. No guilty conscience. But then at one time, he thought he was going to make it right by confessing. He would switch, you know, light on, light off. Because Sal had to remain with Joe at all times, including during visits from attorneys, there was a confidentiality imposed. His lawyers would tell me, Now remember, Sal, anything you hear. And I'd tell them, Yeah, I know, I know. I also told them, Your client is telling me everything you know. Joe seemed to constantly be at odds with his lawyers. I think they were nervous being locked in with him because he was a crazy person, and you never know what a crazy person is going to do. Joe also claimed to have committed more crimes than anyone knew. He said to me, I've done more than what they think I've done. And I said, how many more? I said, don't you want to be known in the books as the best mass murderer going? You got a certain number, you'll probably break a record. But he wouldn't fall for that. He'd just say, nah, there's a lot they don't know I did. I asked him once, why'd you pick on poor working guys just trying to make a living, like the cab drivers? He said to me, what makes you think I did that? I asked him, well, did you? 
He just smiled and didn't say anything. A thin metal wall separated Joe's area from a cell block. The door was kept shut, but sound traveled, bouncing off the concrete and metal. If things were too quiet, Joe would tell Sal, Let's get things going, and he would start shouting toward the door. You fucking niggers! Hey, can any of you fucking jungle bunnies read and write? A pounding cacophony would fill the floor as scores of prisoners screamed back and hurled objects against the bars. You honky piece of shit! You coward! If you didn't have your gun, a two-year-old could kick your ass. Fuck you, niggers, Joe would yell back. If it weren't for the white man, none of you would even be eating. Sal would try to get him to shut up. Joe, come on. You're making the deputy's job miserable over there. The deputies would have to threaten a lockdown to get things quiet, which, of course, was no threat at all to Joe. They'd have to bribe him to stop cutting up. If you give me some ice cream, I won't start anything tonight. And they'd do it, since there was little else they could do to control him. Joe Christopher had celebrity status and couldn't be touched. Joe was actually a wimp, Sal said. If he'd been in the general prisoner population, he'd have been eaten alive. He could be a nice guy at times, believe it or not but he'd let his temper get the best of him. Many times I thought I was going to have to fight with him because he would get frustrated. I could see him clenching his fist, and his body would be tensing up. Sal recalled this happening mainly during the competency hearings. He hated the psychiatrists, absolutely hated them. He would have killed them if he could have. He'd say to me, They think they're so smart, they don't know anything. He couldn't stand hearing what they had to say about him in court. He would stand up and tell the judge, I'm out of here. The judge would say, No, you're not. Sit down. And he'd say, I don't want to listen to any more of this fucking shit, you know? The judge would look at me and say, Sal? And I'd grab him, put him down. Joe would turn to me and say, I thought you were my friend. I'd tell him, Christopher, I am your friend, but I have to listen to the judge. This is painful for me, too, but we've both got to sit here and listen. And he'd go, Oh, okay, I understand. That was when he got the most agitated, listening to the psychiatrist. He didn't think there was anything wrong with him. Kevin Dillon received a call from Assistant D.A. Dwayne Stamp, who had received a call from the Buffalo Psychiatric Hospital. In cleaning out some records, the hospital director learned that on September 8, 1980, Joseph G. Christopher of Weber Avenue had come to the psych center seeking help for mental problems he said he was experiencing. The director thought the district attorney might want to know about this. On that date in September, Christopher had met with a social worker and a staff psychiatrist. Joseph asked to be admitted to the psychiatric center. Based on the interview, which lasted about 30 minutes, they didn't feel he was a threat to himself or others. They had turned him away. They'd suggested he get some counseling and told him they'd have an outpatient clinic give him a call. When the clinic called him a week or so later, he told them that he had joined the Army. Newspapers got a hold of the story. Christopher sought psychiatric care two weeks before killing started. Joe was furious. 
He placed a call to the Courier Express and told them to send a reporter to the holding center. He had a statement to make. Mark Mahoney rushed over to see Joe and pleaded with him not to talk to reporters. Joe would not be dissuaded. Mahoney finally left in frustration as an editor and staff reporter arrived at the holding center for the scheduled interview. I'm not really going to answer any direct question to me, Christopher told them. I'm just going to show you a little comment I wrote. He slid a handwritten note across the table. In regards to Wednesday's sensationalism, as for being sent to the hospital at Fort Benning, I was sent to the hospital as a result of my not eating in the stockade. I was being slipped some kind of drug every time I ate. I went from 152 to 116. In the hospital, I gained weight and was sent back to the stockade. Again, I was drugged. I made a small slice in the skin around my penis and asked to go back to the hospital. At prior stay in the hospital, the main topic of conversation was the Atlanta case. I have just this comment for now. Joseph Christopher I thought he was already in the military. Sergeant Pauline Ratcliffe was an Army recruiter. She was telling Kevin Dillon and Mark Mahoney about the day in September when Joe Christopher had shown up at her office, looking to enlist. She had initially mistaken him as already being enlisted in the Army, a serviceman perhaps looking for guidance on some matter. His hair was extremely short, Ratcliffe said. She remembered this quite clearly because she had been struck by the fact he wore his hair in a military-style cut. Ratcliffe pulled out her records on Joseph Christopher. He had come to see her on September 16, 1980. She'd considered him a great prospect, since he had already passed military aptitude tests the year before. He had scored quite high, too. He wanted infantry. She'd also noted on his card that he wanted to leave for the Army as soon as possible. Judge Flynn was not keen on further competency hearings. He felt there had already been enough. Mid-Hudson had certified Joe as competent to stand trial, and both judge and prosecutors wanted to get on with it. In New York City, however, Judge Benjamin Altman had ruled Christopher incompetent to stand trial on the Manhattan murder and attempted murder charges. Altman had agreed with Buffalo psychiatrists, who deemed Christopher unfit, issuing his ruling on February 10th, while Christopher was still at Mid-Hudson. Kevin Dillon and Mark Mahoney were stunned by Christopher's quick return from the psychiatric facility, and highly skeptical that he could have been successfully treated in such a short period of time. Christopher had filed his writ seeking release without the knowledge or consent of his attorneys. Dillon and Mahoney wanted their client re-examined by the Buffalo psychiatrist who had testified at the competency hearing to determine if any progress had been realized in his mental status, with the goal of determining if Christopher was truly any better able to assist in his defense. At a conference with Judge Flynn and prosecutors on March 9th, they asked the court to grant their request for re-examinations and allow funds for such. Prosecutors were vigorously opposed to hiring psychiatrists whose testimony had previously led to Judge Flynn's incompetency determination, 
and urged Judge Flynn to refuse the request. Mahoney cautioned that the prosecution's argument was a clear demonstration of the people's willingness to urge the court into errors that could result in reversal of this case later on. Judge Flynn made it clear, however, that he favored the prosecution's position on the matter. Two days later, Mahoney filed an affidavit in support of their application for psychiatric services. In the clinical summary dated February 18, 1982, authored by Dr. P. Chalapa, psychiatrist at the Mid-Hudson Psychiatric Center, and submitted in connection with the notification of fitness to proceed, it is described that Mr. Christopher continued to maintain the same mental status in response to the program for him at that center. Nevertheless, the defendant was certified as ready for trial. If the defendant's mental status has indeed remained the same, Mahoney wrote, and if that mental status continues to cause him to be unable to participate effectively with his defense counsel, then this court could hardly reach a different conclusion on the issue of the defendant's fitness to proceed than it did on December 16, 1981. Mahoney had spent in excess of four hours with Christopher since his return to Buffalo. He still could not get his client to speak with him about the case in any rational way. When Mahoney had broached the subject of finding expert witnesses for ballistics testimony, Christopher had told him, that he had an expert witness, but wouldn't tell Mahoney who that might be. On dealing with incriminatory statements the prosecution was alleging he had made, Christopher still kept insisting, Leave all that to me. I conclude that Mr. Christopher is no more able to assist in his defense than at any previous time, Mahoney wrote. To the contrary, he exhibits an even greater tendency to make unreasoned and precipitous decisions about his case, which introduce additional barriers to effective assistance in his defense. Referring to the competency hearing that had concluded only three months before, Mahoney wrote, Three psychiatrists examined Mr. Christopher solely on the question of his fitness to proceed. Doctors Park and Joseph concluded, that the defendant was an incapacitated person, while Dr. Rubenstein believed the defendant was competent to stand trial. At the hearing, these psychiatrists testified at length. The doctors largely testified according to the conclusions contained in their previously submitted reports. However, Dr. Molnar, on cross-examination, conceded that the defendant did indeed suffer from a mental disease and that, as a result of same, he was inflexible in his ability to cooperate with defense counsel. This particular testimony, of course, is not consistent with the finding of fitness to proceed. Only Dr. Rubenstein, who found himself unable to reach a diagnosis of Mr. Christopher after a 35-minute interview, at which only 10% of his questions received responses, the only non-certified examiner, remained unambiguously on the side of a finding of fitness to proceed. I am not unmindful of the indication made by this court, in the conference of March 9, 1982, that the court would not allow any psychiatrist to testify who did not file reports on behalf of the Mid-Hudson Psychiatric Center. I am confident that, 
on reconsideration, the court will agree that the scope of a competency hearing cannot be limited to the psychiatrists who examined pursuant to an order of examination without serious violation of the rights of the defendant to compulsory process, effective assistance of counsel, due process and equal protection of the law, and the right not to be placed in jeopardy without a full and fair opportunity to litigate his capacity to stand trial. The defendant's indigency should have no bearing on his ability to obtain such re-examinations and have access to such testimony, as it is necessary to have as many as four psychiatrists appointed. It is requested that any authorization herein not be limited to compensation of $300. Judge Flynn denied the request. Dillon and Mahoney offered to pay for the psychiatric exams out of their own pockets. Judge Flynn was still unmoved. He maintained that there would be a hearing at which only one psychiatrist would give testimony, Dr. Paul Chalapa of Mid-Hudson, who had deemed Christopher competent. Dr. Chalapa was examined and cross-examined for three days in March. The judge allowed Christopher to skip the proceeding and remain in his cell. Joseph had voiced very strong objections to the judge allowing any hearing whatsoever on the question of his competence. He swore he would not come to court if one were held. This time, the judge didn't fight him. Following the testimony of Dr. Chalapa, Judge Flynn heard closing arguments from Prosecutor Duane Stamp and the defense attorneys. An observer might have mistaken Stamp for Christopher's attorney. The prosecutor defended the competency ruling along with Joseph's resistance to further tests and his request for a non-jury trial. Stamp characterized Joseph as stubborn rather than mentally disturbed, telling the judge that his stubbornness is rivaled only by the stubbornness of his appointed counsel, who insist things be done the way they want things done, in opposition to their clients' choices. Responding to nursing reports that stated that Christopher stayed reclusive while at the hospital, Stamp said that this demonstrated his sanity. Mr. Christopher's interaction with inmates and his social inability at the institution was entirely appropriate, given the fact that he was not psychotic and the others were. If you were sent there, he asked the judge, would you keep to yourself or talk to every passerby? Mahoney pounced on both the testimony and credentials of Dr. Chalapa. He brought out that Chalapa, having failed the required examinations on multiple occasions, did not have certification from the American Board of Psychiatry. I think it takes quite a lot of gall for a person who has tried for ten years to become certified as a psychiatrist to lay blame for Mr. Christopher's unwillingness to communicate on attorneys and the other psychiatrists who have found him incapacitated, Mahoney told the judge. Chalapa had said he made his decision to certify Joseph as competent within twenty minutes of meeting him and without benefit of the physical, psychological, and psychiatric tests that the director of Mid-Hudson had said were required. When Mahoney confronted him with the January 26th letter to Judge Flynn from the director, stating that they could not make an accurate diagnosis without having Christopher undergo the tests, Chalapa had responded angrily that his superiors never should have sent that letter, 
that he had the situation under control. He had already determined that Christopher was competent on January 18th, and his superiors had not consulted him before sending it. He told the court he could see it, Christopher's competence, immediately, after just twenty minutes with the man, Mahoney continued, even though the court and the others couldn't see it with all the time they had, and he said it was only out of courtesy to the court that he decided to keep Mr. Christopher at Mid-Hudson for two months. Chalapa had claimed to have found the real Joe Christopher because he did not bully him, as he asserted others had. He concludes he's better than the other psychiatrists, Mahoney said. He apparently believes he's done something no other psychiatrist did. He's proud of the fact that he was able to establish the competence of Mr. Christopher. Dr. Chalapa is one who pretends to more knowledge than he possesses and is apparently a quack, said Mahoney, referring to Chalapa also as a charlatan. Duane Stamp argued that Dr. Chalapa's findings were common sense and asserted that Joseph had come out of his shell because this doctor was the first person to treat him as a human being. Mr. Christopher is able to understand and to cooperate if he's treated with respect, not bullied, Stamp said, accusing Dylan and Mahoney of bullying their client, disregarding his wishes and thus not providing him with proper representation. The client of the DA is not so enamored with his representation, Dylan shot back, the DA's client being the people of Erie County. If the client had its way, believe you me, you would have a special prosecutor in here right now. Judge Flynn ruled Christopher fit to proceed. He encouraged him to opt for a jury trial. Christopher insisted he was sticking to his decision for trial by judge. He still refused to say why. Judge Flynn approved his request for a non-jury trial to begin without further delay. The only victory for defense attorneys was the granting of their motion that Justice Flynn recuse himself as trial judge. Since Flynn had been privy to evidence and private conferences concerning the case over the past ten months, Dillon and Mahoney felt he should not be the one to sit in judgment of Christopher. Judge Flynn agreed stating the appearance of impartiality would best be served if the trial now proceeded before another trial justice. Context of White Supremacy All right, we are making progress uh, getting on through the text. Uh, we'll pick up, I think we got into chapter, I mean, part four. So they have parts and chapters here, so we are in part four now and I believe we even switched over now we're in chapter uh, 16 uh, midway through Catherine Massey book club context of white supremacy wackiest book ever man oh man uh, so the number to dial 720 the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate 
Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. We actually ended right at the end of chapter 16, so we'll start at the very beginning of chapter 17. Love it when we get a clean end to the chapter. Email is untiljustice at gmail.com. Untiljustice at gmail.com. Before I get to one of the emails, I said I solved the mystery. Canisius College. What happened? If you really want all the details, I can send you the email. Uh, I can send you the newspaper clipping so you can check it out for yourself. The short of it, it was not connected to racism, even though they said bigotry in the report that I read. Basically, in October of 1996, uh, Canisius College, two different females, probably white, the reports that I saw didn't specify made a report alleging that they were attacked on campus so they had like rallies and even during one of the attacks allegedly the attacker called the female a dyke allegedly so homophobia all the rest of it in November one of the females recants the officers end up reporting that this was a fabrication so then you have lots of confusion and Oh, wait a minute. Uh, so there's only one attack, maybe? And in fact, I think they said she recanted not only this incident, but an early, earlier report, I believe, in like March of the same year. So it was a lot of uh, confusion and people were upset and fake reports and all the rest of it. Uh, but all of this is in the Canisius College newspaper for the autumn of 1996. Uh, I just I was interested, so I called Canisius College and they have... Uh, a historian who knows that type of information about things that happen on the campus uh, but they said that they gave me that person's number and I left them a voice message but they said you also could just look through the archives of the newspaper and see what's there I did and mystery solved not even related to racism anyway people who wrote in report number one uh, on chapter 15 uh, I asked him to say the word nigger right at the beginning of the chapter Ames answered I guess just to see his reaction Ames he told he told him he had a female companion what else did you tell Mr. Christopher about her Mahoney prodded probed all right I will be more specific said Mahoney did you tell him that you would ask her if she was willing to engage in sexual activity with him I told him if he wanted to ask her he could I wouldn't ask her that this is just bizarre difficult to process what was his goal with this stunt just another confused victim I guess I don't army life is so I've not been in the military but I mean man like sexual access it's almost like conjugal visit type of a thing like what in the world and that's cowbell too like what because it was a black female what in the world why is that even offer he's in greater like what in the anyway number two 18 year old Kenny Paulson important had been interviewed by prosecutors Kenny's memory was improving all the time in Regan's opinion Kenny had known from the start who shot Glenn Tun 14 year old black child 
Either way, Kenny Paulson was no longer John Regan's problem. It was probably a good thing for both of them that they wouldn't be spending any more time together. Regan wasn't going to do anything to Paulson in different ways of both maintaining the white code. Why isn't Paulson being prosecuted again for obstruction of justice, lying to prosecutors and what have you deliberately? Number three, black leadership form delivering a citation of infamy for what they viewed as Cosgrove's poor handling of the investigation. Cosgrove is listed at the beginning of Matt Greider's book, like in the dedication for horsemen of justice. Uh, belief in the black community that more than one person had been involved in the murders. The forum wanted the task force to remain in operation to investigate the slings of Parlor Edwards, Ernest Jones, Roger Adders, Roger Adams, and Wendell Barnes. Yes, indeed, they should have been thoroughly investigated, much like the Atlanta child murders. No one was prosecuted for most of these murders, uh, including the murders where the heart was ripped out of Parlor Edwards and Ernest Jones. Uh, just like the so-called Atlanta child murders, most of the victims in that case, no one was ever prosecuted uh, for those murders. And the task force in Atlanta also was shut down relatively quickly after the arrest of Wayne Williams, even though he was not charged with the vast majority of those crimes. Number four. Joseph believed that army personnel at Fort Benning had told him that he had sexually attacked his mother. Is Joey subconsciously referring to past anti-sexual behavior between he and his mother? Maybe during childhood? Whoa, we had listeners who thought about this before. Is there some sort of Oedipal? Now, we had listeners who thought there could have been some sort of Oedipal thing going on, not with his mom, but with his dad. Was his dad, did his dad sexually abuse him, maybe, or physically abuse him? The bedwetting, remember? And then people thought that as well about the mom thing. So, I mean... All kinds of, I mean, sexual madness. How about that as a title? Super freak. Let's see. Uh, number five. I correlate my position to a man that wins a trip to Las Vegas, was sent there, takes the house, and comes back. An acquaintance possibly having an interest in, say, Hayes, and says, Hey, how about me and you go to Atlantic City? I'll provide the transportation. How is that? How about? How about sincerely Joseph Christopher? Interesting that even though his mind is disorganized, he still attempts to use a metaphor. Until I became a cow's listener, I never paid much attention to metaphors and how much they are a part of the language of suspected racists. Indeed, and his metaphor, Sin City. Yes, yes. Number six, the judge adjudicated Joseph Christopher an incapacitated person. He ordered Christopher committed to Mid-Hudson Psychiatric Center for treatment until such time that he was deemed mentally fit for trial. On February 24, Joseph was discharged from Mid-Hudson and returned to Buffalo to stand trial. All the legal wrangling regarding Christopher's sanity was interesting. I doubt there would have been the same process for a non-white perpetrator. Absolutely not. Let's see. Number. Oh, so this is chapter um, 16. Joseph Christopher seemed like an entirely different person upon return from his 10 week stay at Mid Hudson. He was much more outgoing, laughing and joking around with his captors on the ride back. He brought cartoons, cartons of cigarettes back with him, along with books, The Way and Shogun. 
They do it for fun, glory, and material comfort. Shogun was a 1975 best-selling novel later turned into a popular 1980 TV miniseries. The plot centers around English Sea Navigator, who is the first outsider to enter Japan during the, 19- during the 1600s. He injects himself into the political affairs of feudal Japan. Lots of samurai swords and bloodshed. Number two, you like watching men shower? Christopher would taunt. I bet Christopher was disappointed that it wasn't a black male watching him. Delectable Negro. Number three, he eventually started striking back, wearing his serial killer persona like a glove. He would smile at them and say, I should have killed more of you fucking niggers. We had him locked in and he keeps saying it real loud down the hall. I should have killed more of you fucking niggers for fun glory and material comfort incidentally that in one of many moments where I said now is this someone who is incompetent hmm number four Christopher's change in attitude might have been influenced by feedback he was getting from some of the deputies they pass by a cell and tell him Joe we're raising bail money for you so you can get out there and finish the job. Joe would tell them, keep up the good work, and they'd laugh. Joe ate it up. Another delectable Negro metaphor. Interesting that the author doesn't mention the racial classification of the supportive deputies. These are the white males, females that await non-white victims in greater confinement. Incidentally, it was a white enforcement official in New York who was making jokes about uh, the massacre at the Topps uh, grocery store this year, a few weeks back. Remember that? Foster is his last name. Joking about it online just a few days afterwards. Standard operating procedure. And there have been lots of reports of that, right? Throughout many of these texts, white people bragging and cheering him on I hope you get lots more and let's you know get him a more powerful gun a bigger knife yeah get more of him I hope he gets 20 30 50 more hmm number five the only thing he didn't like about it was the blacks the negroes he said to me I knew I couldn't do anything about the blacks around me I could only do it away from the base so nobody would suspect me he'd wait till he came home on leave he did try to kill some of the black soldiers in his group that is a good point he knifed remember they even said that he got upset with the half white half negro in addition to knifing the fellow who called him a faggot and teased him about the bedwetting so yeah he I guess had some self-control but not too much uh, let's see number six Sal recalled I asked him why'd you pick on the blacks he said it was because a black guy raped his sister they're all no good they all deserve to die he used to talk about these guys he killed and tell me he enjoyed it I'm going you enjoyed it he said yeah I only regret I didn't kill more how many times has that said in the book didn't kill more. I wish he killed more. I hope he gets more. Let's help him kill more. Uh, he'd be smiling when he was telling me about it. No guilty conscience. Fuck you, niggers. 
Joe would yell back. If it weren't for the white man, none of you would even be eating. Speaking truth about what racist man, racist woman, and racist child think. Again, does this sound like someone who is incompetent? Number seven, Mahoney pounced on both the testimony and credentials of Dr. Paul Chalapa. That was how she said, Chalapa. He brought out that Chalapa, having failed the required examinations on multiple occasions, did not have certification from the American Board of Psychiatry. My internet search suggests that Dr. Chapala is non-white, possibly Asian Indian, may in part explain the emphasis on his credentials. He may still be alive, age 83, phone number 845-326-8073. We'll give him a call. I could totally see that, though, if he's non-white, like, oh, wait a minute, this, this, let me see your papers. Oh, yep, 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 see, he fell, and in fact, they even have data about that. Now, we were talking about that in the context of going to take the test for voting, black people in Mississippi, but it's, it's SAT, all of the tests that white people make us take invisible man mentioned this week you start catching up they change the answers to the test change the questions too amazing but yeah I, I think that is a, an astute point and it sounds totally plausible maybe we can give him a call and see if he remembers this kid did he read this book was he think about the the credentials did he think this fella's competent maybe we should give him a call anyway 83 he'd be younger than mr. fuller Anyway, rest of his notes are, we didn't get that far. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'll get to some of my notes. Look for folks with a hand up and get the rest of the emails. Uh, we are closing in on the end of the book. So folks can be thinking, man, how important are these events? We've invested two months, more than two months, reading about all this wackiness. New York State history is all of this worthy of being mentioned nearly 50 years later just because another white man goes to kill niggers in New York at a tops is this worthy of being brought up again or is it you know hey lots of white people they didn't bring up Joseph Paul Franklin like hey that's another white lots of white people go around killing black Jeffrey Dahmer lots of white people they could have mentioned maybe it's just a, a sad footnote in the history of white supremacy racism where many white killers go out and kill black people or maybe this is a really important event certainly in the last 50 years history in the northwestern hemisphere certainly for New York State history pretty important I would think let me get to some of my notes uh, I'll get the rest of the emails and then double check for folks who dialed in if they have commentary as well uh, so going back to 15 kind of the end of 15 for this week Kenny's memory this whole exchange uh, about making him comfortable and saying Negra and all of the rest of it fascinating courtroom exchanges uh, said reminded me of Mark Furman even though uh, Ames is a black male uh, and then particularly when we get to this part about did you bring in this black female and did you you know tell him that he could have sex with her and all that again 
military culture is a little bit different in that regard. I think that's one of the few environments where this sort of thing has been known to happen all over. Uh, that's why they got all these war brides and everything else. And, you know, we got to get our weekend leave so that we can go out, whether it's sexual intercourse with other females or other males. But this is pretty widespread. And I would even say like, hey, with this whole exchange right here, I don't think Christopher wanted to have sex with this black female. Same way we talked about earlier when it was uh, Ernie Smith, the black guard or black co-worker, sorry. He said they went out looking for street girls. I don't think Joey's inter- interested in black females. I think he's interested in black guys sexually, anti-sexually, if you, you know, if you will. Anyway, um, Kenny's memory is improving all the time. I'm not surprised. Uh, and he used to date this guy said like come on you probably swapped racist jokes with him you've known you know about this guy for a long time uh let's see and the reward money that i think that's interesting too because earlier uh pelinero had said that these black people that they were going out and getting guns and doing all this to try to get the reward money when i said i don't think that's the case i think you got a lot of black people this is just basic self-defense white killer is going out stalking killing black people mutilating the bodies police seem like they don't really care and or are cheering on this guy like hey go get more of self-defense fine get a gun i protect myself i didn't hear black people talking about reward money i for sure think kenny paul's gonna be like man whatever let this white guy go what reward money twenty five thousand dollars. whoa wait a minute uh i actually I, I i did see him i it was a white man 20s 150 pounds all the information you did say there was a reward for the, yes my name is Kenny Paulson K-E-N-N-Y like come on come on come on uh, let's see mm, so he doesn't want a jury trial they have lots of news or uh, paper reports going over all of this about you know he he does not I almost put that image well I did have that image up I took it down just to put an image of the cartoon up that was talked about last week so that you could see it uh, that was calling attention to the fact that these composite sketches look nothing like Joseph G Christopher like nothing now weight gain and all that aside but still not even close uh, so he declines a jury trial. They think this is, or at least some of them, that this is more evidence that he doesn't really understand this whole procedure. He's incompetent, blah, blah, blah. Uh, let's see. He's not going to sign anything about all of this. Uh, 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 uh. The competency hearing, all of this takes up a really long time. All of that plays out in the newspapers uh, as well. Many uh, black people talk about this. I have to post some of that from like, uh, the Buff- the yeah Buffalo Criterion and some of the other black newspapers of the time, even outside of New York State, uh, where they said this is exactly what the caller just wrote in. This process would have looked totally different if it had been about they execute black people who got competency issues and have done so recently and have a long history of doing that. This would have looked totally different if it had been a black person and it oh he's not coming to get out. We're prosecuting. He's killed all these white people. Get out of here. Yes, he is. He's competent. But wait a minute. He can't even spell his name. Yes, he can. Get up there. Stop drooling. Get up there. Put him on the stand right now. Trial is getting ready. They wouldn't have even had 
three, four, five, twenty different competency hearings, they would have got rolling. Many of the black journalists pointed that out at the time. I'll share some of their articles as well. Like I said, the black press did a really excellent job, like A plus all of them. Uh, no shortage of coverage of these events. Next. Uh, the Among the detailed information. Oh, wait, let me back up. Joseph refused to cooperate with the mental health staff. Uh, his mom informed them that he had a head injury. Oh man, all this that he bumped his head in 1979 and refused medical repairs and all the rest of it. Like again, man, black people don't even get stitched up. Medical apartheid, long history. Uh, if you bump your head or anything else happens, and all the you don't even get an opportunity to decline appropriate medical attention maybe he did sustain some level of brain damage at this point but I mean he was still gainfully employed well in advance of killing black people well after he got this head injury allegedly on this vehicle the axle drops on his head and you know whatever else he has to get these stitches and all that this could just be white mother looking out for her racist child like I don't want him to die I don't want him to get you know sentenced I'm going to do what I can because he's got so many character witnesses even heard some of that in the intro people thought oh my gosh he used to help all the elderly people he was such a great dude she even emphasized that in the intro said oh man even the black people said oh no you got the wrong guy Joey is not racist he's just a crazy white boy he is not racist he used to pal around with us all the time hmm uh, so yeah he refused to get a CAT scan crazy yeah yeah not racist he's just crazy Joe's, Joey believed that army personnel at Fort Benning had told him that he had sexually attacked his mother talked about that before he might have been uh, telling on himself Freudian slip type thing uh, let's see I think this is another time where she includes uh, this letter with all his typos and errors and everything oh see he's crazy I've seen a lot of white people who write really poor letters like this it's same type of thing in the book J, uh, J. Strom Thurmond, whites in South Carolina talking about they don't want niggers in school with their children. He might have some mental problems. Absolutely. He dropped out of high school, so I don't expect you know an English doctoral student uh, to be writing this letter, but I mean, I am not convinced. Sorry. Uh, chapter 16. I don't know what you all make, because this is repeated throughout the text. So we go to part four of the text, The Gauntlet, and she starts again with a quote from Alice in Wonderland. What is this children's story have to do with a white racist serial killer who is mutilating people and she quotes again I could tell you my adventures beginning from this morning but it's no use going back to yesterday because I was a different person then it's the oh my gosh like he is so bonkers and wacky and you know he's not even the same person and he's all over the place you talk to him one minute and he's talking this way and then he's laughing and then he's angry he can have mental health problems and still be a racist serial killer who should be held accountable for what he did. Chapter 16. Uh, let's see. 
She said the immensely high-profile nature of the case combined with Christopher's tenuous mental condition and the widespread hatred of him by black inmates who made up the vast majority of the holding center population. Pause right there. Why is that? Why 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 is the holding center population full of niggers? Nigger males probably. Why why is that? The black people just inherently criminal in West New York? Out raping, looting? Hmm. Uh, I think he like watching men shower. Sounds says get out of here. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, let's see. In the mornings, all the court cases are being set up, so all the prisoners come down to the bullpens. Why they call it bullpens? That reminded me of because uh, that's baseball, right? Reminded me of Doctor Welsing too. Bullpens. So you got all these black males, right? That's what they said. All the black males they come down to the main floor. 150 inmates in the bullpens, 50 each, and they see me coming with Christopher. This is Sal talking. I got peppered by all kinds of stuff because I had to drag him through all through the hall and he didn't want to go fast. He would smile at him and say, I should have killed more of you fucking niggers. Now again, is this someone who is incompetent, mad? I'm reminded of old Timothy, don't drink the Kool-Aid wise. Jonestown is mentioned in, in this time period where he said regularly he would talk about how this white person got older and they got like dementia all these mental problems that comes with old age but they would break into nigra jokes and racist this and all the rest of it and he said that this white person never did any of this prior to all of these mental problems how is it that even when they so called lose their mind they don't lose oh I'm a white person I practice white supremacy racism Joseph G. Christopher could have went crazy just been killing everybody right we got Kim Edmiston in here he could have went out killing white women right that's not what happened he doesn't even attack other white soldiers just dark black males that's crazy again I said what's that mental illness you just attack dark black males mock them about it They say, Sal, bring him over to the bars. We'll take care of him for you. I'm going, I can't. They want a piece of him real bad. Some of the inmates would tell me, Sal, you want a Cadillac? We'll get you a brand new Cadillac. But now, even that, like a Cadillac? Isn't that so niggardly? Mm. Anyway, uh, and he used to just go laugh. I'm looking at him thinking, oh my God, this kid is sick. See, not this kid is racist. This kid, she wouldn't have, I bet she wouldn't have even included it if he'd said, this kid is racist this kid is dangerous kid this is a 25 year old too uh, continues calls him a lunatic as well uh, lots of name calling that's all in the direction of oh he's just sick and crazy and a lunatic and out of his mind uh, there'd be a wall of deputies on both sides of him and me if somebody tried to come through the line we used to grab them and pound the piss out of them is that professional <laughs> like somebody else you don't just subdue them or hey arrest them right trespassing no we grab them and pound the piss out of them hmm all righty professionalism in buffalo 
uh christopher's changing attitude might have been influenced by the feedback oh they pass his cell we're getting bail money for you keep it up now are these white people ignorant about racism maybe they're crazy too matter of fact pause right there i did my research right so let's see i i solved the mystery of kenesha's college and then i was trying to go get i got the cartoon i was trying to get some of the other uh, material if it wasn't for a rental james and the amount because i mean they had whole other books and articles and i mean you could read you could take whole lifetimes reading about the oj simpson trial just the murder trial part of it not even the civil case this would be the book club where i did the most research i mean wow all kinds of material wait till i get to buffalo so this is from august 12 august 12 1981 22 caliber hearings to end. This is the pre-trial hearings part they're talking about. So that's, that's at the top of this report. This is in the Buffalo Courier Express. I'm not even reading that. The reason that I picked this out specifically, report number one, now this is at the bottom of the, ta- at the, bottom of the page. Coke boycott continues despite push. That's capital letters. That's for uh, Jesse Jackson. A local boycott of Coca-Cola company products among blacks is still in effect despite a recent agreement between officials of the company and Operation Push, which ended the protest action nationally. The Reverend Bennett W. Smith, who's been commenting in our session on this book repeatedly, coordinator of the Buffalo chapter of Operation Push, People United to Save Humanity, said, I have issued no statement saying it's all right to go back to drinking Coke. The selective buying campaign is still on until after we've met with Coke buffalo on friday the local coke bottling company is a private franchise owned by the abarta corporation a national boycott of coca-cola company products had been called last month by operation push after negotiations aimed at increasing coke's expenditures with black businesses broke down the boycott ended monday when donald ku Keo, wow, I think this is K-E-O-U-G-H, Keo, not sure. President of the Coca-Cola company announced plans to pour $34 million into black-owned businesses. He also said more blacks would be hired and promoted within the company. I'll stop there. He goes on uh, to give uh, more information. So that's number one. The article that is above that and in between the report on the 22 caliber killings, Sheriff's Department denies charge that black deputy was harassed. Now, that's directly related to what we just heard about the guards at the correctional facility at the jail. Right on, Joey. Should have got more of them. We're raising money for you. Get out there and do it, man. Crime went down. Sheriff's Department denies charge that black deputy was harassed. Findings by the U.S. Justice Department that a black Erie County deputy sheriff was racially harassed have been denied by sheriff's department officials. The denial came yesterday after the Justice Department concluded last month that Deputy Ron W. Miller, a 13-year veteran with the sheriff's department, had been subjected to racial pranks, pranks they call it, by at least one white deputy and that officials had failed adequately to punish the persons responsible. 
However, the Justice Department threw out a racial discrimination complaint filed by Miller. He charged that he was demoted from the rank of sergeant in June 1977 because of his race. Federal officials ruled that even though he was the only black sergeant demoted, it was because he failed the county's civil service examination and not because of his race. Eleven white sergeants also were demoted when the rank was abolished by the Erie County Legislature. I'm uh, skipping through. Let's see. Justice Department records show the racial harassment complaint was filed last September after Miller discovered a black mannequin dressed in a police officer's shirt at the entrance of the Sheriff's Department substation on Grand Island. It was labeled Grand Island Special Police Patrolman Miller. Miller was the only black deputy assigned to that office. At the time, Robert Ford, chief of, oper chief of operations for Sheriff's Department, said that if the perpetrator's identity were learned, the person would face penalties ranging from a written reprimand to termination. However, the white deputy responsible for the prank came forward and admitted to his superiors that he placed the mannequin in the substation. He apologized to Miller and to Sheriff's Department, claiming he did it as a joke uh, I'll stop there oh, 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 oh. the discrimination charges continue and include his demotion and an incident in which he was given a written reprimand for allegedly falling asleep in court while on duty and guarding a prisoner he claimed he was not able to respond to the charges sheriff's officials said he had the opportunity to file a grievance through the union but he but did not respond to the charges I'll stop there so you could just think of that I guess uh, oh man and they even go to the uh, school situation as well <sighs> oh my god I didn't even see that I didn't even see that <laughs> man so when we had uh, Dr. Neil Krauss on the program a few weeks back and he talked about school desegregation in Buffalo racism white supremacy in Buffalo and he didn't know anything about Joseph G. Christopher I said man if you're going through and looking at school segregation desegregation whatever you want to call it in Buffalo at this time there is no way you would miss Joseph G. Christopher it's right here so there's three on the same page with the Joseph G. Christopher hearing which is at the top of the page desegregation must proceed as planned says Curtin I'm not even going through uh, this whole thing but I mean that's what we talked about with Mayor Griffin fighting this all the way and other white people we're not going to do it and you're not going to make us and, rah, 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 and all the rest and yeah that's on the same page and that's rather lengthy we don't want to go to school with negro children got it all right uh back to uh the rest of my notes chapter 16 uh so keep it up the officers cheering them on uh they continue uh da, da, da. the only thing he didn't like about the army was the negros i knew i couldn't do anything about the blacks around me uh Again, he did try to stab and fight many of them, so, you know. Um, a lot of prisoners boasted about what they did. This guy lived in some kind of fantasy world, so he probably made a lot of stories up. I knew he was fighting his own, you know, 
thoughts and mine again he's crazy uh, I asked him why'd you pick on the blacks he said it was because a black guy raped his sister always the raping nigra uh, I don't know but that's what he told me I took everything he said with a grain of salt uh, well you can't blame all people for one person doing something and he goes they're all no good they all deserve to die now again this is he's crazy he sure seems like a lot of white people think this who are not crazy Peyton Gendron he used to talk about these guys he killed and tell me he enjoyed it I'm going you enjoyed it he says yeah I only regret I didn't kill more he's smiling when he's talking about it no guilty conscience I think that's so important because so frequently we are told that white people feel bad they are sorry for what they have done and hey it doesn't get any worse killing people and mutilating the bodies cutting out the heart and all the rest of it killing a 14 year old child eh. having fun wish I'd got more they all deserve to die if I'd only kept my mouth shut I would have got more even those folks who were teasing me I don't like them folks teasing me about my manhood uh, let's see and then the audacity now this is what I mean okay so he says a thin metal wall separated Joe's area from a cell block the door was kept shut but sound traveled bouncing off the concrete and metal if things were too quiet Joe would tell Sal let's get things going that doesn't sound like a crazy person that sounds like racist man racist woman racist child in fact let me flash back in the book club remember we read Chris Kyle American Sniper why also in the oh he was in the Navy not in the Army but in the Armed Services whatever uh, Navy SEAL sorry Navy SEAL Chris Kyle in his autobiography he said he would come home I got my white wife I got my white child. Yeah. Too quiet around here. Nah. This is boring. I'm ready to go back and shoot and kill some dark people. Remember that? We talked about that. Chris Kyle, 2014. We read that book club. 11 years we've been here. Neely Fuller Jr. talked about that. What does it mean to be white? Where he said, man, white people will sit around and, man, it's quiet. Need to get a fight going. Matter of fact, need to fight some dark people. Need to fight some dark people that aren't even here. I know. We'll go where they are and go fight them. Say they're a threat to us, but they can't get to us. That's all right. We'll make up a reason. Weapons of mass destruction. Yep, that'll do it. Let's go. That's typical white behavior. Joseph G. Christopher, I'm treated like a rock star. I'm super protected might not even get prosecuted they say hey I might be insane for all this Let's see how all this goes quiet in the jail cell I could read get some ice cream get some more food do some yoga nah what I want to do practice racism and what do you say what do you say what do you say he said let's get things going you fucking niggers hey can any of you fucking jungle bunnies read and write now the audacity? You can barely put a sentence together. Drop Mark G.E.D. Furman, the audacity. You don't even have a high school diploma. But you got a doctorate in racism, white supremacy. He switched it up. He didn't just have to stick with the same old negras. You negras, you dumb negras, you dumb negras. Jungle bunnies. And then he got it. Can you even read and write? It's too quiet in here. Let's get rings riled up in here. 
observant too. notice yes it's mostly dark people in here black males you, you all are the very people i was trying to kill he says uh the deputies would have to threaten a lockdown to get things quiet which of course was no threat at all to joe they have to bribe him to stop cutting up if you give me some ice cream i won't start anything tonight and they do it since there was little else they could do to control him pause right there that's what would happen if this had been a negro gus t renegade oj simpson johnny cochran pick the black person marshawn lynch remember he used to play for the bills before he came to the seahawks got that super bowl any black person they had been cutting up as they say it's the words words this pranks they just cutting up little time so if a black person had been it you crackers you whitey cracker pecker i'll kill every one of you crackers in this press let me out of here right now every pecker wood in here will get it right now i owe you for what your ancestors so if they had been doing that calm down shut up orental james be quiet Shh. all right fried chicken Watermelon. We'll bring you as much as you want. Shh. Really? And, and ain't much else we you don't have solitary confinement? You just said you beat the piss out of somebody who came over the line to protest. You don't know how to beat the piss out of prisoners who misbehave. I saw Shawshank Redemption, man. You're not gonna tell me, oh, what do we do? Ooh, ooh, ooh. And and, and wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. With the Negras, when they got upset, it was all right. It wasn't you all are going to shut up. We got to get an extra round of dessert. Make you all be quiet. It was lockdown. There will be punishment for you. Why isn't there punishment for Joey? These are the same guys. Oh, I forgot. These are the same guards that are sitting around mistreating Mr. Miller that we read about. Right. Put the mannequin up. These are the same white people that are making the jokes now about the tops shooting. These are the same white people that were high five, Joey, man. We're cheering you on, brother. Get out there. Get 50 more of them, brother. Break my sister, too. I got it. All makes sense now. I got it. And you get that's like you get rewarded for this. I get to go in here and rile up all the niggers, practice racism. You illiterate jungle bunnies, give me my ice cream. Probably chocolate. Joe was actually a wimp, Sal said. If he'd been in the general prisoner population, he'd have been eaten alive. Wrong. He would have been killed. That's what they did to Jeffrey Dahmer, who was also targeting black men. Now, even that, why isn't that looked at? How in the world do you keep having all these generations of white serial killers who are exclusively targeting dark males? I know Jeffrey Dahmer did kill a few individuals that were classified as white, but I mean, it was a few. The van, He killed over a dozen people, reportedly. The vast majority are, just like Joey, dark non-white males and he got children in there too mutilation exact same thing why isn't all that put together Joseph Paul Franklin put that in there too Joseph Paul Franklin should be coming later there somewhere. let's see oh man he said he was in custody in Georgia he thought they were poisoning him poisoning his food all that he lost all his weight blah 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 he, his he said at the time 
uh, the topic of conversation was the Atlanta case which I thought was fascinating again these two cases used to be talked about together all the time it's stunning to me how one case is remembered somewhat not a whole lot of detail with it the other case totally forgotten about not talked about at all even with a huge event where it fo- the entire attention of the nation world at least for a few minutes is focused on Buffalo and even then it doesn't come up stunning uh, let's see anything else I think that's most of my notes for this portion of the reading uh, we had another email let's see if I can get that in uh, double check for hands as well let's see our other email uh, one of our female listeners she says hi guts and callers apologies I've not been able to write into the book club the last couple of weeks so I've summarized my observations from the last few readings I'm so pleased you included audio of Catherine Pellinero again today I've been wondering about her rationale for writing the book I said that and again we normally we would have heard this a long time ago but this book is so long we still have a couple more weeks to go uh, so we will hear a little bit more of Catherine Pellinero uh, before we finish but again the reason that we waited before hearing from her was to get in that archival material I thought that was so uh, important and I tried to match it up to pretty much where we were hearing that content in the book but yes I always think it's important to be able to hear uh, directly from the author to try to get as much of their uh, thinking motivation for writing the book as well so yes hopefully you got to hear a little bit of her today as well she continues um, at first I thought she might have a connect a connection to the Christopher family which she may on the sly right we don't know Uh, but it appears her father was one of the police officers in the city of Buffalo it's not clear if her father was directly involved in the investigation of the crimes committed by Joseph Christopher if he was I wonder if her bias is an indication of his bias at the time regardless I'm asserting her views about the murders black people and Joseph Christopher innocence are an indication of his views I'd be interested in you interviewing her before or after the final book club reading Gus T would be interested in speaking with her as well hold on All righty, got my microphone correction. Uh, I would love to interview her uh, as well. Lots of questions. I emailed her before we even started reading this book, right after the shooting happened, and I'll email her again because now it's like, hey, we have talked to Matt Greider. You didn't even get to talk to him, and we interviewed him and Frank Dobson and all these other folks in Buffalo, and we read the book like, hey, let's rock and roll. Number two, her concern for white mental health is an interesting angle, and that's white she didn't just say mental health white mental health she didn't talk about the mental health of the victims who had to suffer through all this right or the black people in general who had to suffer through all this she also stated the lack of adequate attention to mental health needs was an underlying cause for the crimes seemingly accepting Christopher was responsible for the crimes which has not been the case in the reading thus far she also stated it brought out the worst in the community again demonstrating her disregard for the actual trauma of the real victims she says it brought out the best and worst in Buffalo I wanted someone to point out like 
what is the best? Like these little tacky marches when they come out and sing we shall overcome in October and January to protest the Klan and all the rest? Like, is that the best of Buffalo? Like, you got to be joking. You got to be, I mean, really, you got to be joking. Uh, Let's see. Demonstrating her disregard of the actual trauma of the real victims, the black men who were murdered, their families, and the black Buffalo residents living under terrorism. Amen. Number three, it's interesting how many people knew Joey Christopher expressed shock that the police suspected him of being the serial killer, when, who then go on to tell stories of his strange behavior and how the narrator downplays incidents of dysfunction in his life which would have been presented as negative if any of the black victims had done the same for example not being able to hold down a job despite the many opportunities he had just because he is white compared to the characterization of the victims who struggled to find work a man no matter how much they tried joseph mccoy pelinero also presents a deceptive narrative in her critique of those victims who worked more than one job suggesting nefarious reasons parlor edwards number four there are so many examples of sexual deviance which the author minimizes I mentioned the use of the Lewis Carroll quote. There are two of them. And the fact that he is suspected of being a pedophile. Oh, that's right. Glad we got that mentioned again since you quoted him again today. A fact I'm sure the author is aware of given how recent the book was written. I'm wondering about the author's acceptance of sexual deviance. Dun, dun, dun. We should look at the other books that she wrote. I thought they're all true crime, but that's something, you know, I encourage. Like, we'll do that before next week. What else has Pelinero written? Is there sexual deviance in those texts as well? Let's see. Number five, Pelinero introduces Donna, Joey's ex-girlfriend, as an attractive auburn-haired woman in her early 30s. Why do we need to know her physical attributes? She was nine years older than Joey. I thought that was interesting, too, because that could be another one, because she was like 29 and he was like 20. I said, that's right on the cusp of, you know, I don't know. We got parents out there. If you got a daughter who was 20, she comes home with a 29-year-old male. Mm. or if you got a son who was 20 and they come home with a 29 year old female Mm. might be me just being prudish let's see does Donna's attractiveness excuse the age gap and the inappropriateness of the relationship great question deviant Donna didn't want to take advantage of Joey by undercharging him for the handiwork he did in her home So she took him to dinner and got into a sexual relationship with a 20 year old Joey Christopher. Er, Okay. (laughs) Again, Pelinero's presentation of the relationship minimizes the inappropriateness. I agree a thousand percent. Donna and Peter were allegedly confused by police considering Joey as suspect because violence was so out of character. Both of them give examples of attempted rape and necrophilia, photographing Donna on top of the grave. Also, at the same time they were interviewed by the police, Joey had already been arrested for attempted murder of a black male, a fact not in dispute. Number seven, Donna mentioned Joey being sarcastic to his mother. Something tells me his sarcasm was more like abuse. What mother would be okay with her 20-year-old son being in a relationship? What did I just say? What did I just say? <laughs> what did I just say? What mother would be 
okay with her 20 year old son being in a relationship with a woman nine years older question i don't believe she would have been able to intervene if she wanted to number eight joey's sister talked about his change in behavior including him attending church with his mother becoming more serious and dressing in corduroy suits did joey call me joseph christopher turn into his father and become his mother's husband see all that edible stuff we talked about that before is that what's happening here there's so much of that right we talked about it woody anyway number nine and they got the shrine and everything that they said was all creepy the shrine to the father in the house the, even the police looked at them like this is a necrophilia again uh, let's see number nine irrespective of the above he is clearly attracted to black males that's what I said any interest he shows in females apart from the sexual dysfunction with his mother is a cover up I agree totally that's why he didn't he wasn't interested in the street girls he wants some black street boys number 10 as of 2021 there were over 900 cases of sexual abuse against the Catholic Church in Buffalo uh, thank I said we should have checked that I said that talking all that nonsense about we're religious get out of here may that might have happened with Joey too going to church growing up not that that excuses it but the bed wedding that we talked about great fine number 11 I believe there is a clear cover up of these murders oh I got it I, I believe there is a clear cover up of these murders versus the Atlanta child murders one reason could be the perpetrator is white be the alleged murder in Atlanta black male there is no way the owners of the Topps grocery store are not aware of its history I have much more to say but I have to say for future readings yeah we got more reading to go so take your time but yeah that what that is an important point the Atlanta child murderers are blamed on a black male so they have no problem making sure that we all remember that this We're not going to talk about this ever. Even scholars who live in Buffalo and teach and write books about racism and Buffalo's history, even they don't talk about these events, which are very well covered. Audio segment number two. If you have commentary, make a note. We'll have time to share once we are done. Context of White Supremacy, the Catherine Massey Book Club. Absolute Madness, audio segment two. Chapter 17. Joe agreed to get a haircut, but that was the only piece of advice he'd take from his attorneys. He entered the courtroom on April 12, 1982, for his first day of trial with short hair. He wore the same old dark blue corduroy jacket, white shirt open at the collar, and army boots. He sat down at the defense table, nodded to Mark Mahoney, and ignored Kevin Dillon. State Supreme Court Justice Frederick M. Marshall had replaced Judge William Flynn. Marshall, age 62, had been chief of the trial bureau for the Erie County District Attorney's Office from 1959 to 1961. He had served as a state Supreme Court judge for the past 14 years. Now he sat as judge and jury in the trial of People v. Joseph G. Christopher. Duane Stamp and William Knapp 
sat at the prosecution table with Al Rainey, the lead prosecutor. Rainey had joined the district attorney's office in 1968 under former D.A. Michael F. Dillon, father of defense attorney Kevin Dillon. Rainey was appointed deputy D.A. in charge of prosecutions by district attorney Richard Arcara, who had replaced Edward Cosgrove on January 1st. Rainey was known as a ferocious prosecutor, with a very physical and bombastic style in the courtroom. He was a rather controversial figure, described by a friend as someone who thought judges were to be ignored. In his opening before Judge Marshall, Rainey addressed the fact that the prosecution did not have the murder weapon of the alleged twenty-two caliber killer. He assured the judge, however, We expect your honor not to be disappointed. This is not a no-gun case. We only want the gun to see if it put marks. We only need a gun in order to test-fire it. The only thing it's good for is discharging a test cartridge in order to thereafter compare the crime evidence to the bullet that we discharged, bullet and shell. The people will show through extensive scientific proof that no two firearms in the entire world are exactly the same, Rainey said, even though produced by the same manufacturer, same model, and produced consecutively. Moreover, the people will prove no individual part of one weapon is exactly the same as the part on a corresponding part on another weapon. Firing pins, barrels, bolts, chambers, they're all different. They may appear the same to the naked eye, but in the microscopic world of the forensic scientist, they're grossly dissimilar. Rainey spoke of the many prosecution witnesses to come. He mentioned Kenny Paulson who he said would positively identify the defendant as the man he'd seen shoot Glenn Dunn. He touched on the fact that Paulson had not immediately identified Joseph Christopher at the lineup because Paulson had some fear when he faced him, confronted him face to face, though he did not explain why Kenny would have such fear at a lineup in a room packed with law enforcement officers and in which Christopher could not even see him. Speaking of the defendant, Rainey said that when he was in the army down in Georgia, he began bragging how he hates blacks, how he hates niggers. While he was being treated in a hospital down there, he smugly bragged about how he committed some despicable acts in Buffalo. He told these black nurses, these black people, he taunted them and told them, I'm a mass murderer. I killed those people in Buffalo, New York. I killed them because I just something I had to do. I felt I had to do it. Rainey told the judge of the search warrants that had been executed and said they found the gun collection that the defendant treasured so well. It was locked up. It was intact. One gun was missing. The Ruger. Mark Mahoney kept his opening remarks short. He said the prosecution's case had two separate stages. The first he called the objective phase when police gathered facts. The second he called the bias stage, which occurred after suspicion had fallen on Joseph Christopher. I think you'll see from the evidence there occurred a point in time where, rather than the investigation being guided by known facts and the theory that had been developed, the facts and theories are accommodated to deal with the defendant as a suspect, where the theory is molded to fit him 
and facts are rejected and portions of the theory are likewise rejected. I think you'll see that in the first stage there are suspects and theories rejected because they were not consistent with the theory, and in the second stage I think you'll see a rejection of facts and theories which aren't reconcilable with the defendant as a suspect. In the year that had passed between the time Joe had become a suspect and his trial, Donovan Alden and Peter Tramontina were in turmoil, because they were the two people who had been closest to Joe and who could not invoke any privacy privileges afforded to relatives. Investigators had focused on them and interviewed each on multiple occasions over a period of months. Both were on the prosecution list of witnesses. Donna found the entire situation wrenching. She had spoken with Kevin Dillon and Mark Mahoney at length. But realistically, she had little to offer the defense. She didn't feel she had much to offer the prosecution either. Though they insisted she keep in close contact with them and be ready to testify. In the fall, she'd had a long interview with Knapp at the district attorney's office that had left her very upset. She felt that he was trying to get her to answer questions a certain way, and if she gave an answer that he didn't like, he would say to her, That's not what I'm looking for, and reword the question. He appeared to get frustrated when she would not classify Joe as a marksman. He advised her that he did not want her to come across as a hostile witness in court, because the situation could become very uncomfortable for her if she did. He told her she had been very cooperative with them so far, and he would not expect her to call Kevin Dillon when she left and repeat to him what they had discussed. She had been asked repeatedly if Joe looked any different from when she had known him. She said his nose looked different, likely because it had been broken when he was in the stockade, but otherwise no. She told them that his hair had always been tight, curly, and brown. It had never been long, stringy, or blonde. Donna felt like they were trying to make him look like the composites. Investigators asked her over and over again about Joe as a hunter and his knowledge of anatomy, whether he butchered animals. Did he know a lot about anatomy? Would she say he had a very good knowledge of butchering and anatomy? Until she had finally snapped back, You mean like how to cut out a heart? No. Weber Avenue was once again a hot spot. Every new stage in the case brought renewed attention and unwanted visits. There had been some bad moments last fall. A deer carcass had been left in the Christopher's driveway. On Halloween, some black kids had thrown a pumpkin through the front window of the house and vandalized a neighbor's car before being chased off by Bob Schmidt. As Joe's murder trial opened, Laverne Becker was distraught. He went to his niece Cheryl's house across the street to commiserate. Laverne felt so terrible about Joe, so very bad about what was happening to him. Cheryl listened to her uncle. She knew he was sincere, that he was truly suffering. She comforted him as best she could, though she didn't say so and hated to even think it. It occurred to Cheryl that perhaps her uncle had cause to feel very bad about what was happening to Joe. The prosecution rested their case after eight days of testimony and 38 witnesses. Kenny Paulson identified Joseph Christopher as the shooter of Glenn Dunn. He admitted giving police false statements. 
Kenny claimed his conscience had finally compelled him to tell the truth. Al Rainey downplayed the fact that Kenny had told the grand jury that the shooter had blonde hair. Under cross-examination, Kenny testified that he had lied to police and the grand jury. He admitted he was aware of the more than $100,000 in reward money. Madonna Gorney, by contrast, was a strong witness. She was articulate, straightforward, and her account had never varied. Though it was never brought out publicly, Madonna had withstood some opposition to her involvement in the case. From some of her own friends and family, a relative with the state police had pointedly told her not to get involved. Another told Madonna that her father would roll over in his grave if he knew she was testifying against a white man accused of shooting a black. Some neighbors stopped speaking to her and her husband. Looking back on it decades later, Madonna Gorney would say, I feel like I did the right thing. My father was a very prejudiced person, and so were a lot of people we knew. But that didn't mean I had to be. I've always felt like I did the right thing. I never regretted it. Pre-trial motions to exclude testimony of the Army psychiatric nurses and Father Freeman had been rejected. All three took the stand for the prosecution, as did stockade guards Christopher Corwin and Richard Morgenstern, the latter of whom had been present when Joseph told Captain Ames that he had done the things he said he did in Buffalo. Ames did not testify. Father Freeman told of Christopher confiding in him that he had been bullied by blacks in his unit. They called him faggot and wimp, the priest said. Freeman testified that Christopher had also been bullied by blacks in high school, stating that he was bound by the priest's penitent privilege on other talks they'd had. Freeman said that Christopher had released him to disclose this particular conversation in order to help him get psychiatric treatment. He said he was depressed and wanted to see a psychiatrist. Father Freeman described Christopher as angered and depressed because he felt he was being harassed in the training brigade. He said he felt persecuted and could not find peace of mind. The priest said he had given no indication that he had acted on his anger. Peter Tramentina testified that a Ruger twenty two rifle had been among the Christopher gun collection. Peter had not seen the gun since late 1978 or early 1979. Donovan Olden was not called to testify. The prosecution's final witnesses were ballistics technicians Michael Dujanovich and Robert Perigo, director of the Central Police Service's crime lab. Perigo generally confirmed the earlier ballistics-related testimony about matches between shell casings at the crime scenes and those found at the defendant's home and cabin. Cross-examined by Mahoney, the prosecution's firearms experts conceded that not all of the crime scene shells matched exactly with those found at the Christopher properties, arguing for dismissal on the grounds that the prosecution had not proved its case. Dillon noted the prosecution's failure to call Frenchie Cook, the man who had been walking with Emmanuel Thomas the night of the murder. Cook had gotten a clear and close-up view of the killer and had said, I will never forget his face. He had not identified Christopher nor anyone else at the lineup. Dylan found it telling that the prosecution had chosen not to put him on the stand. He argued that the murder of Harold Green was the weakest case. 
There is a paucity of evidence that connects Mr. Christopher to that shooting. The best the people have been able to offer are witnesses who saw the back of someone running away from the scene, someone they believe was a male because of the way he ran. Concerning the Glenn Dunn shooting, Dylan said, I can't conceive the court considering the testimony of Kenny Paulson. Judge Marshall denied the motion for dismissal. The defense case lasted three days. They called eleven witnesses that included one brought to counter the ballistics evidence. Peter Vito was a private investigator in Buffalo. Vito would say years later that he was not the ideal choice as a ballistics expert. He was, however, the best defense could do within their resources. Teresa Christopher, who earned $150 per week, had paid more than $6,700 for her son's defense by the previous May, using all her savings and borrowing money from friends and family, after which she remortgaged her home and put the Ellington property up for sale. Her funds having long since been exhausted, the defense was being paid from the public fund for indigent defendants. The defense called Army recruiter Pauline Ratcliffe and one of Joe's aunts to testify that his hair had been short and dark brown in the fall of 1980. Army psychiatrist Major Eleanor Law took the stand to tell the court of her conversations with Christopher. She gave her opinion that Christopher may have been delusional when he had talked of the killings. In the absence of an insanity defense, it was the closest Dylan and Mahoney could come to introducing testimony about the defendant's mental state. A witness to the shooting of Emmanuel Thomas testified that the shooter had shoulder-length blonde hair and a bald spot on the back of his head. His testimony was consistent with the statements he had given police in October 1980. The witness, a young man of mixed black and white race, considered that he had waited a month after the murder before giving police a statement because he had not wanted to be involved in the case. He said his mother had also told him to lie. The young man claimed, as he had in the month after the murder, that two other young men had been with him and had also witnessed the shooting. Police had questioned the two men at the time, but both denied being around or seeing anything. Closing arguments were heard on April 26th. Paulson and Gorney were the only witnesses who could place Christopher at any of the murder scenes. The prosecution argued that whoever had killed one victim must have killed all three, since the bullets had all been fired from the same gun. In his closing, Mark Mahoney noted that at best, the prosecution had only proven that Christopher may have had access to the gun at one time, since all that had ever been found were a misfire and shell casings at his family homes. That did not prove he was the shooter. Further, the prosecution could not produce anyone who had seen the Sturm Ruger 1022 owned by Nicholas Christopher at any time within the past two years. He pointed out the wide variance between the defendant's appearance and witness descriptions of the shooter or shooters. Reporters interviewed spectators of the trial for their thoughts. One black man explained why he had attended the trial. My main reason was to find out if he really committed the crimes, and also to find out why anybody would kill people of a particular race. He commented on the detached look of the defendant and wondered what had been going through his mind. 
I can't say whether he did it or not. I'll leave that up to the judge. Several people mentioned Christopher's disconnected look. One commented, He seems like he's in another world. On April 27th, the morning after closing arguments, Judge Marshall found Joseph Christopher guilty of three counts of second-degree murder. The defendant showed no reaction. Teresa Christopher, rosary beads clutched in her hand, took the verdict calmly. Outside, there were no celebratory screams and cheers of delight from a large crowd who had assembled for the verdict. He's guilty! He's guilty! As the Buffalo Evening News described the scene, it was a collective sigh of relief. A release of the doubts that had entered the minds of spectators, officials, and reporters alike. The Reverend Bennett Smith said he doubted the evidence presented at trial was strong enough to convince twelve men and women beyond the shadow of a doubt, adding, I think the black community can be proud that we have sitting on the bench in this city some of the best legal minds in the country. Former D.A. Edward Cosgrove said, I feel relief and satisfaction now that the investigation prosecution, and public anxiety have come to an end. He expressed sadness at the sorrow of the victim's families and the anguish of Mrs. Christopher, whom he called a fine Christian person. Her family and all of the families harmed need our support and prayers. Black leaders expressed satisfaction with the verdict, but called on the current district attorney, Richard Arcara, to pursue investigation of the unsolved cases. Councilman George Arthur told reporters that he didn't believe Christopher was involved in the other murders that had taken place around the same time period. Councilman James Pitts echoed this sentiment, saying, I think there should be a redoubling of the efforts to solve the unsolved murders of two cab drivers, Parler Edwards and Ernest Jones. Hopefully, Joseph Christopher will not be made a scapegoat. In his last couple weeks at the holding center, Joe turned on Deputy Sal. He got hostile toward him and wanted to fight. Don't even think about it, Joe. I'll do ya, Sal told him. Call me Mr. Christopher. How about if I call you Mr. Shithead? That's it, Joe yelled. You and I are done. The argument was overheard, and Sal was taken off the detail. The sheriff's department didn't want any problems with Christopher, especially now, when they were so close to getting rid of him. Alrighty, we are getting close to getting rid of this book as well, closing in slowly on the conclusion. Context of White Supremacy, Catherine Massey Book Club. Uh, we'll pick up next week, still in Chapter 17. Uh, we'll hear more from the author, Catherine Pellinero, as we proceed. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Email untiljustice at gmail.com. All right, let's see. Trying to make sure we get through our emails, check the phones, and then I'll get my notes as well before we wrap it up for today. All right. One of our listeners, investors who wrote in, 
continuing chapter 17 he writes one Ronnie the lead prosecutor Ronnie had joined the district attorney's office in 1968 under former DA Michael F Dillon father of defense attorney Kevin Dillon maybe an example of unjust networking certainly I was thinking nepotism cronyism they didn't list off all the people that Parler Edwards and Joseph McCoy you know, Glenn Dunn his father and uncle worked down at the courthouse and the prosecuting they didn't say that Let's see uh, number two ferocious prosecutor with a very physical and bombastic style in the courtroom he was a rather controversial figure described by a friend as someone who thought judges were to be ignored only a white lawyer could exhibit this type of behavior towards a judge I doubt that the late Johnny L. Cochran Jr. would have been as successful if he treated judges disrespectfully agreed number three Kenny Paulson had not immediately identified Joseph Christopher at the lineup because Paulson had some fear when he faced him confronted him face to face though he did not explain why he would have such fear at a lineup in a room packed with law enforcement officers and in which Christopher could not even see him Paulson afraid I doubt it number four she felt that he was trying to get her to answer questions a certain way and if she gave an answer that he didn't like he would say to her that's not what I'm looking for my own experience with lawyers is that they are skilled at directing your answers to their questions when they pre-interview you in preparation for court or giving a deposition under oath absolutely they try to be very specific we're not talking about everything under the sun this is all your answer is supposed to be about nothing else number nine Donna felt like they were trying to make him look like the composites interesting multiple perpetrators maybe now again now I asked Matt Greider about that he said no way this guy was a loner he did not make friends he didn't have friends no evidence that he had any homies or anybody that he was uh, working with or hiding weapons or you know going out to jump black people obviously other black people at the time thought this could be a group activity uh, let's see uh, on s number six on Halloween some black kids had thrown a pumpkin through the front window of the house and vandalized a neighbor's car before being chased off by Bob Schmidt how was this verified particularly the racial classification police report rumor that is a good point uh, if there's a uh, news report of this or what have you and we could verify but that is a good point excellent point not that you know that couldn't have happened but just verification uh, number seven Madonna Gorney had withstood some opposition to her involvement in the case from some of her own friends and family a relative with the state police how many white racists work for the police and the sheriff's department and the correctional officers like man what is going on had pointedly told her not to get involved another Madonna uh, another told Madonna that her father would roll over in his grave what a metaphor if he knew she was testifying against a white man accused of shooting a black some neighbors stopped speaking to her and her husband this book has given me a lot of examples of the white code how whites will chastise, chastise other suspected racists when there's a violation. Ironic when it's black people who have the reputation. That didn't, haven't I been saying that the whole time? 
oh my god you got all these white people like, i don't want to get involved in that i'm good <laughs> uh, no thank you i'm all right with that or, or you shouldn't be involved with that this is ridiculous out here testifying against a good white man against these no count heathen niggers he killed a black child ah! raping car thieving glenn dunn what does it mean to be white number eight father freeman told of christopher confiding in him that he'd been bullied black blacks in his unit they called him faggot and wimp man rick james uh the priest said freeman testified that christopher had also been bullied by blacks in high school the vicar seems to make it a point to emphasize that poor joey was bullied by blacks as if that's an excuse agree and again this is why i said like the people who do research and say well hey you know i don't know anything about this case i don't care about it because i research uh education you know racism in education in buffalo hey that's right in the middle of this i said that earlier joey's dad said hey you know the niggers on the bus and, and all these problems go ahead and drive to school it's right in the middle of this and again if you're reading newspaper articles as you're looking for all the desegregation reports you'll see oh man they got this white guy on trial for killing all these negros hmm. number nine with the witness a young man of mixed black and white race conceded that he waited a month after the murder before giving police a statement uh, because he had not wanted to be involved in the case he said his mother had also told him to lie he was his mother white he, he can't be oh no if the white one like jeez all of these would be acts of white supremacy racism like white people saying don't testify and lie and Kenny Paulson and all of that what does it mean to be white racist code all of that right there and that's been all throughout the book Incidentally, when I'm talking about the trash of the uh, FBI files, the little 40 minute video that they have on all this, Madonna Gorney is in that video. You can actually see her. If you watch it, it's 45 minutes. She comes on. She talks about being scared. It doesn't go into all the detail about why she was scared at the Topps parking lot. But it also doesn't give any of the detail. Oh, man, my white family and people sitting, man, don't you do that your white father would roll over in his grave if you were going to go in there and testify about a white man killing some negras white serial killer they left that out too number 10 former DA Edward Cosgrove said I feel relief and satisfaction now that the investigation prosecution and public anxiety have come to an end he expressed sadness at the sorrow of the victims families and the anguish of Mrs. Christopher whom he called a fine Christian person her family and all the families harmed need our support and prayers I've not heard this type of empathy for the family of black murderers particularly if the victims are white absolutely I don't even hear this sort of sympathy for black people when they are victims of crime I mean you hear people talk with this much sympathy about like Trayvon Martin's family Michael Brown Jr's family maybe I haven't read the correct reports 
Anywho, let's see. Uh, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. I'll get my notes, check for calls, and we'll get ready to uh, wrap up this week's session of the reading. Uh, let's see. Finding beginning of, cha- oh, yeah, beginning of chapter 17. <laughs> already spoke about the cronyism uh, and different generations of white people working down at the courthouse um, all this about Kenny Paulson being afraid just white people can lie and do whatever they want to uh, they said at first he didn't want to identify this person as white now they're like, oh wait a minute and I said $25,000 $100,000 worth of reward money ho 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 my memory has gotten much better just make sure you spell my name correctly for the reward money check yes indeed and then he says he was afraid to face him face to face man is that just standard because that sounds like exactly what they said with lame Alice Siebold she was afraid and trembling and they did the old psych job and just put the whammy on her when it was time to do the identification like are you serious Jesus, let's see. When they were talking about how he bragged to the nurses, I'm thinking, why don't they include his conduct while he's in jail? When he's bragging to the other inmates and all that, can that be included in testimony when we get to talking about now? Is he sane? Is he competent? Did he brag about these killings? Does that count? When the guards are coming by high five, hey man, right on, we're rooting for your defense front. Wish you had got more of a man, brought the crime rate. Does that count? Maybe that doesn't count as, as bragging, maybe. Let's see. And continue. Do, do, do. Again, we talked about that. They can't find the Ruger. We talked about that. That too. Is that because he melted it down, destroyed it once he saw that they were getting the shell casings and using that to get evidence? Again, if if that's what happened, is that evidence also of him being crazy? Let's see. They spoke to the girlfriend again. It's like they're upset. Like, I don't want to be cooperating with all this and you trying to twist my words to get old Joey in trouble. And this is the girlfriend who's nine years older than him. You know, and they're asking about hunting and all that. And he did hunt. He did go out and shoot. He had a freaking gun trap in the house. Who does that? She says, uh, they asked her over and over about his hunting. She snaps. You mean like, could he cut a heart out? No. Asking me all these goofy questions. He's a serial killer, man. Like, come on. You all broke up. This guy's acting wacky and everything. You moved on. You with somebody else. Like, what's, what's going on? Why do you feel the need to protect a serial killer? That's part of the racist code, too. Let's see. They felt so bad about what was happening to Joe. <laughs> what about what happened to Parlor Edwards? Ernest Jones? Glenn Dunn? Nah. Uh, let's see. 
Kenny testified that he lied to the police and the grand jury. I wouldn't believe anything that he had to say. Just if I was on a jury and you got some white dude who comes up and, oh, yeah, I lied before and I didn't want to tell him. And, you know, I was just scared before. You know, it was so terrifying. You know, he ran in front of me and everything. And, oh, I got heart palpitations just thinking about it. And, boy, well, that reward money did change. My, I mean, come on, come on, come on. Get out. You sound like Jill Shively, O.J. Simpson. Uh, let's see. I think that's important too. They said Madonna Gorney, when they get into all this, dad's going to roll over in his grave. And don't you testify against a white man, which has been standard operating procedure like forever. White people are not supposed to testify against white people if the crime is against a black person. Why was that never brought out publicly? They interviewed her. She's in documentaries and what have you. Why wasn't that included? This whole trial. I submit this is not about mental health. This is about white supremacy racism. Same with Peyton Gendry, who also allegedly went to get mental health assistance. And we still end up with this shooting. Maybe even that, if you're a white person, eh, we give a lot more latitude. If you're a Negro and you go in and it is, I got mental health. Oh, ho, ho. institutionalized. Maybe that's a part of it, too. They got a whole book on that. Uh, psychosis I'll get it in a moment uh, it's a whole book on that we talked about it before on the program anyway uh, let's see but I wouldn't have believed anything Kenny had to say and why wasn't Madonna Gorney and all this racism brought out within this trial that had so much to do with white supremacy racism anyway same thing he was bullied by black people in the unit bullied by black people growing up same thing that that's putting some blame on black people like you all did all this you might as well include that black people did rape his sister all this nonsense about forcing us to go to school with the children and then they picked on me a little bedwetter little faggot while I'm in Fort Benning man I can't wait till we get the Rick James in there next week I uh, said uh said he was being prosecuted and couldn't find peace of mind he was being prosecuted like do what and he couldn't find peace of mind so he had to get a knife and get to killing some black people that's going to bring him some peace of mind come on come on let's see When they talked about the ballistics evidence and all this, pull out your tiniest violin, you know, his mother's finances are drained. She had to refinance the house and put the property up for sale. And, oh, it's so sad. And, you know, they couldn't even get a great ballistics expert. We talked about this in the context of O.J. Simpson. If a rental James couldn't afford Johnny Cochran, F. Lee Bailey, get those ballistic experts to go out there and, hey, Y'all don't have much of a case at all. And who is this Mark G.E.D. Furman dude? Arunthal James could have been in prison right now. In fact, he could have got the death penalty. We talked about all that. If he didn't have all that money, we, Jeffrey Tubin wouldn't have had no movie, no book, no nothing. Cop a plea deal or you're going to be in the electric chair, Juice. No, I don't feel bad for them because they couldn't get better ballistics expert tough titty as they say uh let's see 
Oh, we didn't get any further. That's it. We got close to end of chapter 17, but not quite. Uh, let's see if any folks had uh, additional comments, observations that they want to get in before we get ready uh, to wrap up almost at the end of the book. Uh, a little bit lengthy because this trial went on for such a long time. He got convicted, got overturned. They had all these competency hearings and all the rest of it. It took him whole seven months before they could even catch him uh, in the midst of all of this. So, I mean, it is a winding odyssey uh, in all of this. But wow, you can learn quite a bit about white supremacy racism what it is, how it works. And again, in the midst of all of this, what's happening uh, in Buffalo right now, trial hasn't even, some of these issues might pop up again with Peyton Gendron, depending on how, you know, if I was his attorney, I would have to play that up that he went for mental health uh, assistance before all of this, you know, even took place. So, hey, we might even see some of this again whenever, you know, that, all of that works its way through the court proceedings, especially since uh, with the federal 27 federal counts of hate crimes and weapons charges that Peyton Gendron may be facing the death penalty. Absolutely. I would be looking for any angle possible. So keep all of this in mind as we proceed with the current race soldier hearings in Buffalo. Anywho. Uh, if folks dialed in do not have any uh, observations or commentary uh, on what they heard for this week, people that are listening in, much obliged for the folks who uh, wrote in. Uh, we'll have a couple more weeks before we wrap up so folks can get their concluding thoughts, analyses, questions. Has this been worthy of our time and energy? Is this important? Uh, what do we think about so few people being aware uh, of these events, why that is, all of that, and even Catherine Pellinero try to get in a few more segments uh, of the white author giving some of her thoughts so we can process that as well uh, as we get ready to wrap up the book. Uh, probably have, I don't know, a few more weeks uh, before we are all done moving on to a new book. Anywho, uh, we'll be here tomorrow, Neutralizing Workplace Racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, we will give out some suggestions and hear how people are uh, doing on the J-O-B. Much obliged for folks tuning in. Hope it was worthy of your summer Thursday evening. Uh, see, folks are good. Didn't see any hands, so assume folks are uh, all good with uh, who dialed in live on the line. Uh, if you're listening in, feel free to email your commentary and we'll share them next week uh, as we get ready to wrap up the text until justice at gmail.com. Sobriety would be best. Man, you have no idea. Race soldiers are out and about when you need to be level headed so that you can make great decisions to keep yourself safe. In addition to being sober, uh, if you are out and about and you see someone being rowdy and hostile, exit. We just heard yesterday, Nicholas Gunn, he said he was out at the festival. White people were being uh, rowdy. He said, hey, he thought they might be trying to escalate this deliberately to provoke some sort of situation. If you are not ready to kill and die right now, hey, exit call enforcement officers or whatever you need to do as you are vacating the premises 
Uh, if you're in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled, not on your cell phone, doing the small things that we can to keep ourselves safe. And we need all of our attention. Peyton Gendron, Joey might be in the vicinity. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Yeah, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.